You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also joining us is Ms. Susan Tekla Kruglinska. This is no dream. This is really happening. Shocktober 2019 continues with a look at the 1968 film from writer-director Roman Polanski, Rosemary's Baby. Based very faithfully on the book by Ira Levin, the film stars Mia Farrow as the titular Rosemary, who, along with her husband Guy, played by John Cassavetes, moves to a new apartment in New York where some strange things play out. I'm not sure if anyone listening to this episode is not familiar with Rosemary's Baby, but we're not going to pretend that they're not and let folks know that we will be ruining this movie for people who haven't seen it, read the book, read the sequel, watch the movie, watch the TV movie sequel, or watch the TV miniseries event. And maybe we'll ruin some other things along the way, too, just for kicks. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw Rosemary's Baby and what did you think? Right, shameless plug here, but I actually wrote a love letter to Rosemary's Baby last year for my magazine, Diabolique, talking all about this, actually. It came to me just at the right time when I was in my teens and I was really getting into the occult. Like, I was in that teeny witch phase and it came along and it just... It's just amazing. It's like my comfort film. I watch it probably two or three times every year. I know some people like to watch Disney cartoons or whatever when they're feeling poorly, but for me, it's Rosemary's Baby. It always cheers me up. 
it struck me as just so different to everything else I'd seen involving witchcraft. Like the witches in this are kind of cool. They're evil, but they're, they're cool as well. So, yeah, it was a, a, a mind-opening event for me and then a film that seemed to have followed me throughout my career because I am always seem to be talking about it with whatever I'm doing. There always seems to be some sort of reference to how Rosemary's Baby changed horror. How about you, Susan? I feel like I've seen this movie since I was a little child. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but certainly uh, it must have been on regular television, chopped up with commercials, with the one of the central scenes taken out. And then I'm sure the first time I must have saw it on the big screen was in college because they used to show every week, um, you know, kind of classic movies. And then I've seen it many times since, um, and it's always been absolutely top, top, top. I think if my, you know, favorite movies. It's to me a perfect 10. Um, it's pretty flawless. You know, I love horror, obviously. And so this has always been just something that really attracted me also for the um, incredible strong female lead, you know, just uh, uh, I think as a young person seeing it, it was very powerful to see that kind of lead female character and, and, and a very feminine character being so strong. I can't even remember the first time I saw this movie because it just feels like it's always been there. Like, I remember the first time I saw The Exorcist, I remember practicing the clarinet and The Exorcist was on, but Rosemary's Baby just always seems to have been there. And I, it just kind of, I, I guess it was around the time that I was in college where it really struck me. And it was also in college where I finally saw Repulsion and after that, I was like, oh, I can kind of see some similarities between Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. And then I think it was two years ago that we did The Tenant on the podcast. And then that was just like, wow, Polanski's really exploring a theme here with this whole urban nightmare apartment kind of thing. And Rosemary's Baby is just another perfect example of that. And, and with you guys, I also agree that it is just such a well-made film. It is just gorgeous to look at, keeps you on the edge of your seat, even though you've seen it however many times, it just always strikes the right note for me. Again, it's one of those perfect tense. It's like Jaws. Uh, it's like The Shining to me. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I could not watch it. I, I, I now I'm, you know, I'm going to be launching a, I'm doing a podcast on the series, taking it apart, you know, minute, but every uh, seven minutes. And so I'm now watching it obsessively. I've seen it on the big screen recently, twice more with friends. I'm seeing it with friends and strangers and, and, you know, just watching it obsessively. And I am, you know, just absolutely not sick of it in the slightest. I could watch it 10 more times right now. I love how the opening kind of lulls you into a sense of just, very passive viewership, that wonderful mu music by Komeda, the, yeah, Mia Farrow with her kind of sing-song lullaby song that she's doing, the very pink and flowery cursive of the credits and everything, and that, that wonderful shot going around Manhattan until we end up at the Dakota and then going down and seeing that little couple of Guy and Rosemary going into the Dakota or the Bramford as it's played in this film. Everything from that beginning just wants to invite you in, and I am a very willing viewer of this, and I love the way that the camera 
plays with perception so much, and we are very close to Rosemary's POV throughout so much of this movie. We identify with her that way, and also so much of this information that we get is what Rosemary gets. There's very little that we see as the audience that Rosemary does not see, so we really are forced to identify with her. That opening, though, is so... That's what struck me, I think, the first time... I saw it was it was so different to everything else I'd been watching around that time, like slashers, hammer horror, you know, all that sort of stuff. And even now, it still feels really fresh and different, the the tone and the mood of it. It's just... But if you look at that in context to what was happening in horror at the time when you had, you know, end of the 60s, gothic was still a big thing. You know, there was a lot of experimentation happening. But this is like horror that happens in the daylight, in these beautiful, chic apartment buildings. And I don't think it's ever like that. The tone and the style has ever really been replicated or it's like a complete one-off the way that film opens up. And and the, again, the, the femininity of it, um, again, like you said, the pink titles in that very flor, flor, flowery um, font, the La 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 opening with Mia's voice herself, and um, the colors throughout the whole movie, yellows like crazy. I mean, her cute little A-line dresses. Um, and then she's just a real female archetype uh, in herself. You know, she's got this little girl voice. Um, you know, she's, she just plays, you know, being a little, you know, and that's the way me, just Mia Farrow's personality. She's almost a character actress. Uh, and that comes through, you know, her whole personality comes through very feminine. And then, you know, after this, of course, we're going to see a lot of tough female leads in horror. And before this, you kind of saw, you know, maybe Deborah Carr and the Innocents or, you know, some other kind of, I think they were more, you know, kind of tough female leads. And I compare this a little bit to The Shining where Shelley Duvall also plays a very female, she's terrified, she's crying, you know, but she's still the strong female character who's a hero. And um, this is extremely unique in horror. I love the way that this movie even sets up, even within just the first few minutes, one of the first characters that we meet is the Elijah Cook Jr. character. So the first person that they interact with, that Guy and Rosemary interact with, is an older person. And that is so critical to this movie, the whole idea of older versus younger, and who's part of the coven, who's not part of the coven, who's inside, who's outside. And that they meet him first, and that the first thing that Guy says is a lie. And he continues to lie and lie and lie right from the beginning of his dialogue is just crucial because he will be just the consummate liar. He is constantly gaslighting uh, Rosemary through this entire movie, and that right off the bat, he's lying about what place he's been in, that he was in the army or whatever. It's just like all of these things, everything that is out of his mouth is a lie. I fucking hate Guy. <laughs> he is just such a slight... He's just so wild, wonderfully played. Absolutely brilliantly played, but I cannot stand him. He's just such a sleazy, underhand, horrible little shit, really, isn't he? 
Oh, he's perfect. I mean, he slaps her ass through the whole movie. You just want to like, I mean, he's, he's really, it just bleeds through his, his, uh, you know, that this, do you completely believe that this guy would do this? You know, you do have no doubt that this guy is capable of doing this underneath it all. Um, and it just, yeah, you, like you said, right out of the bat, he's lying to this guy and being sarcastic and kind of making fun of poor Mr. Nicholas, you know, poor, uh, Alicia Cook Jr., who, by the way, if you take a, very close look. He's missing some fingers, um, which is in the in the novel. And they actually taped down. Polanski went nuts with the details in this movie, and he actually taped down his fingers on both hands to give him missing fingers. Um, something you just don't notice. It's like this ridiculous little detail. I like that he mentions that the former tenant, Mrs. Gardenia, was in a coma. So that we're going to have that presaged already that this whole idea of putting someone who's against the coven into a coma, like Hutch will be. I like the idea that the character's name that we never see is Mrs. Gardenia. So we've got this idea of a flower, like rosemary, like a garden. So, and it just, and she's got the garden inside of her apartment, which many will have picked up because she couldn't rely on Mrs. Gardenia, apparently. This whole thing of the, uh, the, the big wardrobe that is put in front of the closet door, which of course reminds me of Polanski's short film, Two Men in a Wardrobe. So it's just like all of these nice little things that we have going through here and that we just set up all this stuff so quick. There's that weird detail of the guy in the hallway who's drilling a hole in the door. And I love that. There's just like this throwaway little thing, but it's one of those weird touches that Polanski is so good at. Well, we should say up front that this movie follows the book to the letter. And so that's actually, those are Ira Levin details. Um, you know, uh, uh, Polanski, this is not really as much an auteur kind of Polanski movie as, say, Repulsion or Cul-de-Sac or Knife in the Water. This is Ira Levin's baby. And Polanski decided to go, uh, again, with every detail. There are some strange little details in this movie that, that you have no, um, like at one point, Roman Cassavetes is holding a transistor radio because in the book, someone gave him a transistor radio and you have no context for that in the movie. But that's the amount of adhering to the book line for line, the dialogue, the, the colors of the clothing. Sometimes the, the way furniture looks, it's all right out of the book. I don't believe any movie has ever adhered to a book as closely as this one has. Well, it reads like a screenplay, doesn't it? The book. I didn't read the book till like much later on and it was it's just so exact it's like Jesus but then of course with Ira Levin you then get the wonderful connection to Stepford Wives because there's similar themes running through these two books and films well Ira Levin's career was just absolutely fascinating because he was behind a lot of things that I never knew he was behind well, of course, the incredible film Sliver, which uh, <laughs> was probably one of the worst movies ever made. And I don't say that kind of stuff lightly. I've been waiting for We Hate Movies to take that on for years just because it's so bad. But that he wrote the stage play for Death Trap, which is a fan-fucking-tastic film. I mean, that was one of the first times that I remember really seeing Michael Caine in a movie, because I saw that at the movie theater when it was out, that he wrote uh, the screenplay for Bunny Lake is Missing. You know, he, he just had so many uh, irons in the fire. And then, yeah, you mentioned the Stepford Wives. Boys from Brazil. Boys, Boys from, from Brazil, Brazil, yes. 
Which is incredible. Just so bonkers. I mean, really, he did not like the adaptation for Sliver. No big surprise. But that's another one where it's this whole idea of an apartment building. So it kind of plays into Rosemary's Baby as well. And you mentioned the whole idea of the female empowerment that is in Rosemary's Baby, which then plays into the Stepford Wives. So he had some great themes that he worked with. Because it's so kind of critical, those two films of like traditional marriage and the husband's role in a marriage and what a wife's role should be. Because in Rosemary, obviously, jumping ahead here, but Rosemary's used as a fucking incubator for Guy's career trajectory. And then Stepford Wives, you've got that whole thing there about the, the perfect wife and being there to serve the man. So definitely do chime together those two really fascinating considering at the time the climate you know women's rights movement was moving forward a lot and you know they're just so in time with that era but yet still relevant now well becoming even more relevant now I think in the last couple of years because we seem to be moving backwards it simply does not get more feminist than Stepford Wives. I mean, it was just a summation of the problems of, you know, s- female oppression uh, at this wonderful, you know, c- coming out in, you know, a good time period where things were transitioning. But it was still really important to point out, you know, what was going on, what women were dealing with. And Rosemary's Baby is a lot more subtle. But I mean, Stepford Wives, I mean, you know, God bless Ira Levin for writing that. I mean, it's just incredibly, uh, you know, it's an incredibly important movie for you know for women i mean yeah especially that remake no oh yeah <laughs> no just no. don't sorry you know, of, of course get out was get out was very much based on the stepford wives so you know so i loved get out and that was totally an amalgamation of rosemary and stepford wives i thought so much ira levin in that film there's a lot of information, or, or I should say there are a lot of meetings over meals in this movie. Um, there's the whole idea of them meeting with Hutch over lamb, and of, of course, lamb has a lot of symbolism. There's the idea of them meeting for dinner with the cast of vets. And I like that we're introduced to Hutch first via his voice. We hear him before we see him, which... I mean, that's just a few seconds of hearing him before we see him. But when it comes to the cast of Vets, we hear them long before we see them. We hear them through the walls. And so much of this movie has to do with doorways, with walls, with impediments. And just, there, I can't even begin to talk about how many shots we have of a doorway in the back and then them coming towards us from that doorway or people being framed in doorways or frames within frames. There are so many shots in this movie, and especially when they finally do meet the cast of Vets and they have dinner over there, there's a shot of Rosemary looking at the doorway, and we just see the smoke from Roman and, and Guy's cigarettes or whatever they're smoking, and we never get that privilege of going around the corner. And so again, Polanski is really keeping us in line with what Rosemary sees. It's wonderful because I think only someone like Polanski could have done a film like this. You know, yes, it is very, very faithful to the text, but he was very good in films like Repulsion in The Tenant of drawing on this sort of suburban paranoia and insiders and outsiders and all these themes that he was obviously attracted to. Obviously, because the project was originally William Castle's, 
who I love. I love, love, love William Castle, but William Castle could not have pulled this film off the way Roman Polanski did. And in a way, it was the film that broke William Castle's heart because he was always waiting for his A picture, his, his break, and it was him that had the foresight to see Ira Levin's novel would be big and to pick it up. But then obviously when he made a production deal, he was kind of pushed out in favour of Roman Polanski. And I, but I, I don't think William Castle could have done this. I just... It needed somebody who was young and experimental and, you know, because it really captures that era as well. It's really in time with what was going on. And, and slightly ahead. I mean, you know, you can definitely see the influence of the 70s, you know, taxi driver and all that, like very ultra real, gritty kind of, you know, on the streets and, and very realistic dialogue, very realistic acting. You know, I think it was it was a bit ahead of its, you know, ahead of its time even. Yeah, because Polanski, I think, was about 35 when he made this. And it's interesting that it is comes out in 68, but it is set very much in 65, 66. And it's very crucial that this movie is set in 65, 66 for not just the idea of her having a baby in June of 66 to have the whole Mark of the Beast thing, but moreover to play with the whole idea of the Pope coming to New York. And even you could say that is God dead cover of time magazine, which was a nice coincidence that that just happened to be, I think it was April of 66 that they came out. So it's just really playing with the idea of the Pope's visit, which then goes into her and her religion and her being the slaps Catholic, which just is running through this entire movie. And I love that the dialogue again, coming right from Ira Levin has so many things, a little twist to it, the whole uh, um, idea of when Guy gets his part, that he says, hell of a way to get a part. It's like, oh, that's so nice. (laughs) 66 was also the year Anton LaVey opened the Church of Satan as well, because you had that whole counterculture movement towards the occult as well. So it kind of, it's interesting that it's made at the end of that decade, just you know, obviously Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, but before all that sort of shuts down and we get the 70s. So it's it's almost like a, a foreshadowing of that dread that comes, but also channeling that energy of counterculture. And, you know, it's, just, it's a very decadent film in its own way because of that. And it launched, you know, it really launched this kind of Wicca movement. I mean, you had just in the, you know, in the 40s, which wasn't that long before this, Gerald Gardner launching kind of a Wiccan movement in in the UK. Aleister Crowley, of course, a little bit before that. And then, but yeah, I really, I'm dying to know if Ira Levin, he must have known about Anton LaVey. I mean, it almost seems like this is so coincidental at the exact same time. He must have like read an article or read, you know, saw something about Anton LaVey and thought, oh, this is this is an amazing angle for a story. And then, you know, coincidentally, I mean, and then because of Rosemary's Baby, just shove that whole movement forward. And I mean, before you knew it, like in New York City, you know, the Warlock Bookshop opened up, the Magical Child Bookshop. You know, we in I know, you know, in the United States, of course, in San Francisco, you know, this this movement really blossomed. A lot of people blame this movie for that. But I think clearly he had to have been inspired by Anton LaVey, uh, who, of course, there's a big rumor that he influenced that he was a consultant, which has been disproven. 
Yeah, I've talked many times on the podcast about the whole idea of the 1970s just being this weird wasteland of all these different movements like Est or Scientology or, um, you know, the, the whole New Age movement and all of these things. I mean, you can't get a film like Carillion Witness in a time or, uh, uh Chariot of the Gods where, where people are very set in their faith. I mean, the 1970s was just this kind of, we don't know what the fuck we're doing, so we're going to try anything and see what sticks. And that comes right out of this late 60s. I mean, 1968, I've talked about on this show so many times as far as being this very, very tumultuous time for the entire world. It wasn't just the U.S. and protests against Vietnam, uh, the death of Robert Kennedy, all of these kind of things. It was all over. I mean, I've talked many times about the student movements that have happened in Japan and France. So 1968 was just this year where a lot of stuff was coming to a head. And a lot of that also played into religion. I mean, you don't get an article like Is God Dead from Time Magazine, which really shook up a lot of people. And that's 66. So we're presaging that with hidden 66. So there were definite, definite things that were happening. I mean, the, the Kennedy assassinated Kennedy assassination shook people the fuck up. And that also plays right here into, um, Rosemary's baby with her whole dream sequence and having both JFK and Jackie Kennedy in there. I think it does hark back though. I mentioned decadence a minute ago. I don't know if either of you have ever read Huisman's The Bar. Have you ever read that? It's a fantasiacre novel about a semi apparently semi based on real life Parisian Satanists at the end of the 1800s where you get this character called Dertal who's lured into this cult by this femme fatale called Madame Chanteloube and it's and you know and all these Satanists are very sort of cultural figures and rich and powerful people and it's a very exciting novel written you know a hundred years before Rosemary's Baby. What I love about Rosemary's Baby is it recaptures that. It brings it back to this decadent thing. Because I think in the 60s, you had that same cultural context. Whereas at the end of the fantasy echo, a lot of people were falling out of love with the church. We'd had the, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, everything's changing. Everyone's kind of plagued with this sense of ennui and they've, they've lost their spirituality. And though, so for those who could afford it, they moved towards the occult. So within the latter half of the 1800s, we get the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which birthed Alistair Crowley. We get uh, Madame Blavatsky and all these sort of strange occult spiritualities because people just didn't know what was going on. They had nothing else to cling on to. And so they become very, what's the word for it, kind of self-reliant and all about self-empowerment. Within that, though, women found uh, high-ranking places as priestesses where they've yeah. been rejected by the church. And in the 60s, we see that again, because I think there was a very similar cultural feeling of like malaise and the church isn't working anymore and we're just fed up of this you know it's a it repeats again and so that's one of the things I love about Rosemary is it it's such a decadent story and it kind of taps into the fact that you have this charismatic magus who's like it goes back to 
Byron in the majestic sort of majestic in ruin in the devil is the anti-hero is the rebel it kind of goes back to that I just I just some of the things I love about it so much it's kind of so subversive as well that you don't get these satanic crones that are all ugly like they live in these amazing places and they're like doctors and lawyers and you know well, there are parents' generation, which I find fascinating that the evil here is not the youth, that it is the parents, that it is the grandparents, that it's all of these older established people. And they seem to have this very wide network of this cult, uh, this Satanist cult. And we should probably say, you know, uh, before people get their knickers in a, in an uproar that we know that this movie conflates Satanism and witchcraft quite a bit. And yeah, if you're Wiccan, just fucking relax, go smoke a bowl <laughs> no, or something. No, it's true. Nowadays, even, even the church of Satan is like, oh no, we don't believe in being, you know, we're not evil. We don't even believe in Satan. We're not even really a church, <laughs> you know. But of course, there's a, Wicca is huge right now. I have friends who are Wiccan, you know, and I mean, they are just 100% like, you know, white magic. We're good people. There's, you know, so yes, we have to, we do have to say that. But, you, you know, again, you can't, I think it has to be, you have to attach this to Anton LaVey. I mean, it's, it, that's the thing, you know, it really is more, it tips more towards Satanism than it does towards, you know. And also, Crowley, though, because if you think about the cast of Etz, they would have been Crowley's generation. And like Alistair Crowley in the 1920s is running around, he's having sex orgies with everybody, he's going off to summon this demon and that de demon, and he's all around the world, you know, traveling. And it kind of reflects back to that. I mean, as much as I think Crowley was full of shit and full of himself, he still remains a fascinating figure and you see i think night of the demons the first one 1957 you see these crowley-esque figures like start to pop up in horror film devil rides out is another one which i love i absolutely love that film it's one of my favorite hammer films unfortunately though it came, it was delayed and came out the same year as rosemary's baby and next to rosemary's baby it just looked twee I said this on a video extra and lots of crazy old hammer men came after me, but I'm going to stand by what I said. You know, you look back at Devil Rides Out now and it's cool because we can... But in 1968, it was like men in tweed standing around the marble fireplace and then you have Rosemary like the same year, which is just mind-blowing. But those characters are the same, MacArthur and Devil Rides Out, and then obviously it all goes into satanic panic then as well. These, these very sort of clever older men or older uh, Hammers the Witches does it as well. They're, they're intellectuals, they've got many, they've travelled. Uh, I think it's a brilliant feature when it comes up in horror films. I'm fascinated with that Magus figure and what they represent. Yeah, Roman Castavet is just so suave, and like you said, like Crowley, he's been around the world several times, very well-traveled, and man, can he rock a pink pinstripe suit, you know? Seer sucker, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. 
Oh, these outfits that he and Minnie wear, they're just fantastic. And Ruth Gordon, oh my God, she is just terrific. I mean, both of the, the actors that play the cast of Vets, but Ruth Gordon, she is always just, you know, captured by heart and her in some of these crazy outfits that she has. And it's weird because they are this older generation, but they are very hip at the same time. They are kind of what you would want to be when you grow older. Back then in this era where this sort of idea of Satanism and, and, and witchery was emerging in horror films, there was actually a fair amount of respect for religion in a way. I mean, even in The Exorcist, the priests were cool, you know, like, um, and I think that in this movie, there is a little bit of a respect, you know, for the Pope and for Catholicism while it's also, you know, dismissing it and making points about it. But I, I, I sort of, in a way, I, I think I sort of miss that a little bit it, that, it, I mean, it, there's just something kind of sweet about it where you're kind of respecting all angles, but you're, they're in competition, clearly, you know. But I love the Pope undercurrent story with this and how, you know, Rosemary is a lapsed Catholic who's battling this. And, you know, they get a little more into that in the book. Yeah, the whole idea of her not necessarily blanching, but her being very uncomfortable when the Castavets are talking so disparagingly about the Pope and that it's all show business and that he won't come to a city where the newspapers are on strike she dreams the cast of vets or at least Minnie being a nun using Minnie's voice coming out of that nun's mouth is really a nice uh, kind of twist on its head. So you're like, okay, thinking maybe she's a good person, but obviously she's not. But yeah, and getting back to Ruth Gordon, I mean, her performance is just exquisite. I mean, it's like clunky and sloppy almost. And it's, you know, typical New York brash. Uh, in the book, she's this Minnesotan kind of heavy set woman. It's a little bit of a different character, but, um, she is, but, but underneath that, it's really exquisite and subtle. And the way she hits some notes, you know, these little lines that you barely notice, like as she's walking in the door and, um, she, uh, she's saying, Oh, thank you for, you know, telling us that we were so helpful for Terry. Of course, that wasn't our fault. We, you know, that's been made very clear by, you know, and she, they, they just, she throws in these little lines you barely notice that adds so much to the story and so much to the tone. And, um, you know, again, just her roughness is actually, you know, it's, it's not easy to put on that kind of performance. It's also the way she represents this sort of maternal figure to Rosemary as well. Because do we, we don't really know much about Rosemary's own family, do we? But she's kind of left alone. She's isolated. She only has Hutch. And she's got, and so Minnie becomes like this mother. But the mother in this case is like the claw behind the glove. Again, I can't think of anyone else other than Roman Plancy that could have pulled this film off like he did. And I can't think of anyone else's Minnie because she's, I don't know, she's just so real, I think. The way she fusses around and she's bossy and, you know, you think, oh, well, she's got a good heart. And she kind of has because she really believes in what they're doing. She absolutely... (laughs) And, and so she does kind of care, but the way she brings the little drink over and she's just kind of, you know, like this fussy older lady is just, she just feels so real. And, you know, for a genre film at this point, is this is almost unheard of to have people this real. 
I talk quite a bit in our episode on the tenant about the idea of an apartment being a safe space. And is it, is it a safe space? Is it not a safe space that the landlord always has the key and can let themselves in? So there's just that idea of your things are not sacred. And many really, she bursts in a few times. She bursts in that first time, like we were talking when she, you know, comes over and says, Oh, I know, you know, we're not to blame, but thanks for saying those nice things about Terry. She just kind of pushes her way in, and then she's very gauche, asking about the prices of things and uh, the way she gasps and 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 it talks about you know how the room has changed since uh, Mrs. Gardenia was there, and then she and uh, Laura Louise push their way in later on, and just that is just the most bizarre scene where Rosemary puts on some music, she settles down with a book, and next thing you know, Minnie and Laura Louise are just in the room and they've set up knitting immediately and kind of uh it's it's like how uh i can't remember the character's name trevenian or or the the character that polanski plays in the tenant like he's being pushed into the role of the former tenant it's like rosemary's being pushed into the role of mrs gardini at that point it's just like oh well we're here to set up our sewing circle you can just sit and watch or you can be part of it we are here get used to it but who hasn't met someone like that my nan was a bit like that. Not from New York, though, southwest of England, but kind of pushy and knows best and would impose herself on people. I think that's just such a wonderful thing about that character. What well, everyone in this feels kind of real, apart from Guy, who's deliberately fake. Um, but everyone else feels very genuine, and I think that's what makes it, when you see it for the first time, so different. So different to everything. And and the story is such a perfect puzzle. It's a, Everything fits together so beautifully. And so because they're so annoying and because they come back from the first dinner with the Cassavettes and they're like, oh, my God, these people are nuts. And then and then when Guy's like, yeah, but I'm going to go back. You know? <laughs> That's such a such a great laying down of his his character. It's so exquisite. It's so beautifully done. The infantilization of Rosemary is also fascinating to me that her, when she has her hair in the pigtails and she's wearing the yellow dress with the, um, it's just very loose and flowing and the way that she like runs over to the door and welcomes guy home and then runs into the kitchen and gets him his dinner and sets it down in front of him. And then she goes over and she's I guess she's tracing out floor plans for the apartment, but she looks like a little girl who's there about to color or draw on some butcher paper. And it's just, it's, it's almost uncomfortable the way that she is, allows herself to be infantilized in this movie. And then I've read some articles where they talk about the haircut. And to me, the haircut that she gets, the Vidal Sassoon is very much her saying, look, I still have some agency and I can do what I want. And I'm going to get this very, chic chic haircut but then there are other people who are like oh well she makes herself into even more of a little girl by getting the haircut and i'm like i'm not sure where i sit with that no i'm on the side that it's uh her trying to lay down her agency she is like the archetype of the gothic maiden though because all gothic traditional gothic functions on the idea that you have this very innocent woman who is infantilized and a lot of gothic romances are all about that woman developing and growing up 
Right, like Rebecca with those huge doorways and stuff. It's just, it seems to be a play on that, but a very modernised play on that, which is interesting, because I always credit this as one of the films that put an end to classic gothic, but then it is a very gothic film in and of itself. It uses places, character, which is a huge thing in gothic, but it's not a castle this time. We've got this beautiful apartment block. Uh, You have Rosemary's, like the traditional maiden... Although I think she has a lot more agency at the end, Gothic romance tends to be kind of moralistic and supports traditional values in a lot of ways. But it, it is, it's like a, a re-updating of Gothic, but just not in an obvious way whatsoever. It's just so subtle. They had originally, Polanski wanted to stay weld for this part. That was his absolute first choice. And um, that is also part of the magic of this movie, of course, as we've said, is the casting. And um, it was like Castle and Evans were really pushing for Mia Farrow. And that was just, you know, I, I think, again, it works with the story having this delicate girl who she, she it makes sense that she's with Guy. You know, it makes a little more sense that she's with Guy. And then um, and that she's kind of being pushed around by the doctors, which, of course, was, you know, what was happening with women uh, back then. Um, but also, that's just that's totally 100% me. I mean, if you see some of the like behind the scenes footage, she's just flitting around like a little kid painting flowers and hearts all over the set and being such a um, I mean, sh- she was really young when she did this. And of course, she had just married this guy who was she married Frank Sinatra re- relatively shortly before this who is uh, you know a thousand times her age or whatever you know i mean she 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 you know that's mia i mean that was like brilliant brilliant casting um and it was a very fresh take on a female heroine i was just trying to think actually did rosemary come out before or after if either of you seen secret ceremony joseph losey's film no but i know of the film because i think uh john waters showed it in maryland a few years ago it's incredible. It's basically, um, and again, another very kind of gothic film where Mia Farrow is this heiress. She owns this huge mansion. It's set in England. And Elizabeth Taylor is a, is a prostitute who gets taken in by Mia Farrow after, and this isn't a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's just like the synopsis, taken in by Mia Farrow after Mia Farrow has lost her mother and I think Elizabeth Taylor has lost her child. And they, the, most of the film is all to do with them playing out this strange dynamic where Elizabeth Taylor becomes the mother and Mia Farrow's like this very child, like she actually act, wants to be a child. And she acts like a child, like a little girl. And Elizabeth Taylor, it's a very, very perverse film. I'm just wondering, though, which one came first, because they both came out the same year. But there's definitely, a, there's definitely a kind of parallel between those two films. Because I think Rosemary, in a way, likes to be infantilized until it goes too far. Like she has this silly little, almost teenager's dream of romance with the perfect apartment and the lovely fashion. And, you know, she's very, very naive. Well, yeah, and so much of this movie are montages of her setting up the apartment and just making it this perfect dream house. She, like, wants that Barbie lifestyle. Like she's making a doll's house, isn't it? Right. So I don't know which was filmed first, but Rosemary's Baby came out June 12th, 1968, and Secret Ceremony came out October, I think, 23rd, 1968. 
but I know there was the whole thing of them shooting Rosemary and Frank wanting her to be on the detectives with her, with him, and then that kind of uh, led to their divorce, or, or you know, however the Robert Evans story goes. I think that's one of the magical secrets of this movie, too. I mean, there's so many wonderful coincidences with this movie, how things worked out. And this is terrible for Mia Farrow. But, you know, she, again, it starts the movie as this little girl. And she is in real life, this very young woman who had just gotten married for the first time to a man who could be her father and had been playing like a teenager on a soap opera or whatever. And um, during this movie, Frank Sinatra says, if you don't finish this movie and start working on my movie... We're getting a divorce. And, um, you know, they showed her the rushes and uh, some of the shots and, and convinced her that she's going to be nominated for Academy Award. And, and there was no way she should leave. Um, of course, she came from a family of, you know, theater people, too, uh, movie people, too. So she had that ethic. So she was like, I'm not leaving. He serves her with divorce papers on set. Lawyer doesn't even tell her he's going to do that. Serves it to her on set. And this was at the point right before the party scene where uh, Rosemary throws this party for herself. It's the point where she's like, God damn it. I've got to, I'm getting the haircut and I'm throwing myself a friggin' party and nobody under 60 is going. And, um, it was after this, she, she was served these divorce papers that I think it's the best scene in the whole movie where the party's over. She's in there with Guy and he's like, well, you can't go see Dr. Hill. That would be unfair to Dr. Saperstein. And she says, what are you talking? I, to me, I get chills every time I see that scene. It, Mia Farrow just nails it. It's such a beautiful scene. And it's really Mia Farrow herself as an actress, I think kind of evolving into an incredible, you know, sophisticated actress. But it also has to do with the emotional stuff that was going on with her that just inevitably led to her being able to embody this character so beautifully. Hang on, I just need to say at this part, I have got a dog called Dr. Saperstein. Make of that one. <laughs> He's actually oh, sat Saperstein. here now. <laughs> you talked about when the Church of Satan or whatever was formed, and I did have to point out that also, uh, so Rosemary had her baby in the, in the book uh, June 28th, 1966, and June 30th, 1966 was when the National Organization for Women was founded, which I found to be a nice coincidence as well. And the, the, this whole idea of we talked about empowerment and agency, I mean, my goodness, she is kept under the thumb of these men and women throughout so much of this movie. I talked about that scene where Laura Louise and Minnie come in. Laura Louise, not only do they start to uh, disrupt Mary, uh, Rosemary with her whole wanting to sit around and read one evening, Laura Louise comes in and sits on her friggin' book. You know? <laughs> and this whole idea of... <laughs> When she gets pregnant, Snapper scenes like, you cannot read, do not read books. You know, books are dangerous, basically. And then when she gets the book, All of Them Witches, Guy takes the book and puts it up on a high shelf like he's this father figure and then freaking throws the book out. Yep. And it's just like all of these things to try to like isolate her and keep her from knowledge. And it just, you know, don't talk to your friends. Don't ask your friends, friends about their pregnancy. Do not read any books about this. And when she happens to mention an epitaph, epitopic pregnancy, Saperstein's like, oh, would you read a book? You know, how dare you? You know, go home and throw it away. It's awful, though, because she's been in pain for, like, months, and she looks terrible at that party scene. Her friends are like, oh, my God, like, what's happened to you? You, like, look terrible. She does look really awful. 
She looks like a freaking vampire in that it's scene. It's been normalized, like, because they just totally gaslight her on any pain or worry. They're like, don't think about that. Don't worry about that. Just drink your tannis root and shut up and don't. So, and, and it's awful that how she, that's why I hate Guy so much, I think, because you can understand it of the Satanist, but this guy's her husband <laughs> and he's just allowing her to like go around like that and she looks at Death's door and you just think, just so he can get a part in a play or whatever, it's like you horrible, horrible person, you don't deserve her. Yeah, one guy at the party says she looks like chalk. In my notes, I say she looks like a vampire. She looks like an Auschwitz survivor. I mean, when she's got the little beanie hat on and she's out in the streets, like one of the few scenes where she's actually out of the apartment, she, yeah, she looks like she just got rescued from Auschwitz. And it just, it, she looks terrible. You know, as far as the doctor, though, um, shortly after this, another Robert Evans movie was Love Story, where the woman in the couple, you know, gets cancer or whatever disease it was she got. And the doctor's like, don't tell her. You know, he tells the husband, but he doesn't tell. That was what it was like. You know, I mean, this is why my grandparents never went to doctors. If you were female, you were, you were very much treated as a child. I mean, in a much more childlike way. Of course, you know, even in the work environment and all that, you were either a secretary or a teacher and you were very much talked down to. Um, so anyway, I, again, I just love the, you know, kind of, um, this depiction of, you know, think times were changing and we see that she, there's sex in the movie. She's, you know, she's, there's some things about her that are very liberated, but it is a really wonderful snapshot of the time of, you know, what, what oppression really did remain for, for women and the whole gaslighting, you know, yeah, the husband raping her. I was going to bring that up. It's a rape and it's the way it's just brushed off. Because, you know, in a marriage, a guy, a husband has certain rights over a wife. And even now, that that ridiculous notion still exists to some extent. And that scene is the one that always just really hits me. When she's in the bed and she's got the cover pulled up. Like, this is somebody that she trusts. And he laughs it off. Oh, I just got a bit rough. Oh, you know, and it, and it's just very subtle but it's so you know to be confronting rape in a film marital rape in a film like that because this is the year i think was 68 the year the Hayes code went down as well so you know even up within the Hayes code you can even talk about rape 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 you know and this is this is marital rape this is a guy taking advantage of his wife when she's supposedly passed out and, uh, and all done just so quickly in about a minute. It's incredible. What's well, that? A guy. It's the guy. It's the guy Woodhouse. Yeah, I mean, the I don't think it is Woodhouse any shithead. I don't think it's any coincidence <laughs> that his name is Guy, that he represents so many men in this, if not all men. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> And the way that he tries to make up with her, like bringing her flowers. Flowers are so important in this movie as well. And then also the colors of the flowers, I think, really speak to so much of this. I mean, when she comes home from talking to Hutch about how unhappy she is, about how Guy is having troubles looking at her, it's all red roses all the way around. And that she wears red in bed for the the uh, the big date night that they have for when she's going to get pregnant. And I love that it's Guy telling her, 
we're going to get pregnant. You know, the, this is him dictating she's going to have a baby. And so it is very crucial in that they have the baby the right night. He knows when her cycle is and when the best night to have. That is so fucking creepy because I'm sorry, I've, I've never, I'm 45 years old and I've been married twice and I've never been with a guy who knows anything about my fucking cycle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, don't yeah. you know it when you're cranky or whatever and then all of a sudden the guy's just like, are you on your fucking period? Yeah, well, you get that, <laughs> but you don't get him making a calendar of it <laughs> in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Circling the dates in red again with the red color. And the, like I said, the red plays an important part with her in the outfit that she's wearing. Um, it really comes up quite a bit during the, the sequence where she gets raped and there are just, uh, she wears the red dress to the big party that she has later. And I noticed that the, you know, we talked a little bit about yellow and how yellow the apartment is. It feels like, and I, I should really try to do some screen grabs here or something but it feels like as her mood starts to wane that the apartment actually gets darker and that might just be because we're getting later on in the year but it really feels like the apartment gets darker and darker and then there's that moment when she finds out that she's pregnant that she's very happy and the apartment suddenly seems to brighten up again and they bring in the yellow bassinet and she's got the yellow bibs and all of these yellow accoutrements suddenly show up and it just like Yep, the apartment is brighter again, then it starts to get darker and darker and darker. She's got the yellow candles when they're having their candlelight dinner before Minnie comes over and gives uh, the chocolate mouse. This whole idea of Minnie mispronouncing things is great, too. I love when she talks about being pregnant and making pregnant into three syllables. The, the word the word mouse comes up a few times, you know, when she's being raped by the devil, um, she mentions being bit by a mouse, you know, in her dream state. But also, I noticed for the first time, I saw it on the big screen pretty recently, and I had never noticed this before, but when she's running around, when she was trying to meet Hutch, and he never shows up, and then she's at Tiffany's, and she bumps into Minnie Castavet, and that little Tiffany's window that shows the um, manger scene, there is a, it's a, it's a really cute little sort of doll-like manger scene, but there's a little wolf climbing the hill, and there's a little mouse at the bottom of it, which makes no sense whatsoever. And I just thought, what an incredible I've detail. I've never noticed that. <laughs> I need to see it now. It's so eerie looking. It's really eerie looking. So it, it, it's a beautiful little detail. Boy, I tell you, the detail in this movie, it makes it, you just want to watch it over and over. There's just so many little tiny background things when you especially see, you know, got, yeah, everybody's got to see it on the big screen at some point if you can. Well, you even saying the word mini and the word mouse in the same sentence. And I'm just like, I wonder if there's something to that, you know, and how many times we see Minnie wearing something on her head. The whole idea of her with that. Uh, Got that little bow thing, hasn't she? Oh, that, she that beautiful babushka that she's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> the dinner scene again with the, the mouse and that whole power struggle that she and Guy have with the well, the chalky undertaste. And it's like, well, I don't taste it. Well, you you must be crazy. And that's, again, one yeah. of those instances where he's really gaslighting her and basically gets his way, kind of, that she ends up eating more of it. But then she gets her way, kind of, because she ends up dumping part of it. And so then she actually gets to remember or can 
process some of the dream that she has as being real life, that she actually has that agency to say, this isn't a dream, this is really happening. That whole orgy sequence is one of my favourite things in a horror film ever. And I'm consistently disappointed by satanic films that came later and just don't go far enough with the orgy. I think the most perverse thing about it is, though, that you've got these very naked older people in it which has somehow just become so much more sinister and ugly and perverse when you have that juxtaposed with a fantasy version when they're on that boat and the whole thing is just so fucking creepy and the paintings on the ceiling and it's just like, just, oh, just... And the fact that she's like, like she's been drugged and and Minnie says to Guy, oh, she can't see you. She's like dead. Oh my yeah. God. That is just. <laughs> Keep singing. <laughs> but the, all the dream sequences in this movie, from the first one with the nun, where you're hearing Minnie across the wall, to, you know, the one on the boat and, and this whole, and then the rape scene, they're just, uh, what amazing dream sequences. Again, it's like very unlike anything you've really seen previous to that when you think about dream sequences in movies. This was so impeccably and cleverly done. And I know Roman Polanski said he didn't want, he wanted it to be very quiet because he felt like in a real dream, they're not loud. There's not a lot of noise. And so there's no music, a lot of empty space as far as the sounds uh, in all of it. And just, um, oh, just, I, I, they're some of the best scenes in the movie, obviously, are the dream sequences and the most memorable and, uh, again, groundbreaking. Well, I love that there's the third dream sequence that doesn't really get talked about or mentioned, which is later on in the movie where she actually is imagining her with the baby and all that. And that's like, I think when she's drugged after she might have given birth and it's just a real quick moment, but it's like, okay, yeah, there was another dream sequence in here. It's not nearly as spectacular as the others, especially the rape scene. There's actually four. Four, so okay. Yeah, so there's the the nuns, there's the rape scene, there's when she's in Dr. Hill's office, she falls asleep. Thank you, that's what it was. That's what it was. And she sees the baby and the people are cooing over it. But then there's a, and I never got this till recently, but when she um, wakes up at some point after the birth and she says to Guy, how is the baby? And he says, the baby's fine. That's supposed to be actually a dream sequence. But it's, you know, she, she opens her eyes and you see the camera pans down to Guy's face and you just want to punch him so hard at that moment. That's actually a very quick dream sequence where she's told that the baby's fine. Is that also the moment when she looks over to the window and it's just, just this really odd shot of the window of her apartment building and you can see the air conditioner yeah. and it's just like, what is happening here? It just feels yeah. so strange. But again, it's keeping in the idea of her POV. And yeah, you're right. As far as that, that scene with her and Guy right there, I want to say that it's almost POV shots, but it's not. So it kind of keeps you off balance. It's kind of like the way that... Polanski switches lenses through this and is using almost a fisheye lens at times, like a very wide angle. And so it keeps you off base, but it, it isn't enough that it's distorted and really like brings attention to itself. Yeah, one of the most like film school shots is obviously the one where Ruth Gordon is on the phone with Dr. Saperstein and she's cut in half. 
you just see her back. And, and apparently the audience at that time, because that was not done, leaned the like you would see the whole audience kind of lean over to the right because you just that was the instinct that the audience had because you hadn't really seen that kind of shot before. I love the way that these things in the Castavet house play into her dream, the whole idea of her going to that bed and there's a church on fire in the background and then we'll see that church on fire as a painting, the whole thing of her even repeating the line like you've got her too high, which is kind of like the ceiling of the uh the Sistine Chapel, which is also them you know taking them taking her from her own bedroom into their room. The um I love to the the image of Roman's father being he he's standing on a ledge in the uh, dream sequence but then we see later on that it was basically the exact same place where the picture of his father is in the the apartment she is very observant and that's one thing that I say we have to give Rosemary a lot of credit for she picks up so many more details than anybody else in this movie the whole idea of when they come back to the apartment after they've had dinner with the cast of vets and she's like did you notice all the pictures were missing when the one picture that they did have was not the right size for the place she's the one who also notices that the wardrobe has been moved from wherever it was to in front of the uh, closet door. She always picks up these little things that nobody else can. And that's one reason why it's so hard to fool her. She eventually gets the wrong idea of why they have impregnated, impregnated her or why they, they want her baby. But it's, pretty darn close. She knows pretty much everything other than that. She's been inseminated by the seed of Satan. I think that's where his strength comes from, though, isn't it? Like we were saying earlier, she's a, just a very strong character. On one hand, almost childlike, very like this this little princess girl, but also very intuitive and very, very strong, which really then gives you the punchline at the end. And we talk a lot about the final girl, which came along later on, but often this film just doesn't get the credit of having somebody who is that stubborn and tenacious you know but without being aggressive because she's so subtly played I guess but she doesn't give up they gaslight her and she doesn't give up even though they're telling her all this stuff, she doesn't do an Ingrid Bergman and just get hysterical. She just quietly keeps pushing along, pushing along in her own way, making her own inquiries. And Yeah, and also, you know, the perspective of the lead character, um, you know, that does come a lot from the book, I think. Um, but it's certainly that must have influenced Plansky later for Chinatown, because, I mean, I think that was Polanski's decision to make, like, every single scene... Jack Nicholson, you know, he's a literally every single scene in Chinatown is from Jack Nicholson's perspective. So I think that's sort of interesting that I think the book and the filming of Rosemary's Baby, you know, influenced him later to for for what cons- some consider his greatest film. He then does he does that with repulsion though, doesn't he? With Catherine Deneuve's character, because a lot of what you see in repulsion. That's true. Yeah, is her perspective, which isn't always. Right. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah. There's yeah. the rape in that, which is probably not a real rape, or at least at that time, though I always wondered if she had been raped before, or if this is some sort of weird, like, uh, she's so sexually repressed in that movie. 
Yeah, and, and she's an unreliable narrator in a way because she you're always seeing her, well, mostly seeing her perception of things which is skewed and off and misinterpreted and you get her hallucinations and all that kind of stuff. Well, it doesn't go as far with that with because I think Rosemary's more logical. No, repulsion is a beautiful portrait of mental illness. I mean, it really, you know, like, I mean, it's just a, a you know, incredible portrait of it's, it's very accurate, actually, in many, um, at the time, even psychiatrists were saying that. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's true. I kind of forgot that that was so much in Catherine Deneuve's point of view. It, it is, it's, it is similar. It's a portrait of mental illness, but I think there's also such a portrait of being a woman in there. And this is from a man saying this, especially those grabbing hands. It's just like there's so many times where she's being leered at and just not believed and all these things. And that, again, plays into not only this, but great point about uh, Chinatown, because, again, Jack Nicholson, he comes across this conspiracy and he's trying to get himself heard, but he's talking to the wrong people. You know, he's talking to Noah Cross, who's basically the big bad guy behind this. He is the Satan of that film. And Jack Nicholson... He gets a lot of things wrong, and he just isn't the, the brightest detective in the world. In fact, there's a lot of times where he's kind of the worst detective, and that is played off because he's a divorced detective at the beginning of the film who's thrust into this thing that he can't handle. And poor Rosemary, she understands what going what's going on but all of the people around her are just shit you know she goes to guy and says guy this is what's happening she lays it all out and guy's like yeah 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 you can't say he doesn't believe her because he's in on it and she goes to dr sepperstein she says all this stuff and he's like okay yeah 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 tries to discount her a little bit but then you know okay yeah i'll give you the right medicine i'll do all this kind of stuff and kind of turns it into a positive with the cast of Ed's leaving again another huge lie and then again it's all wrong. You know, she ends up finding out that he's part of it. And then she goes to Dr. Hill and, you know, does it matter if he believes her or not? No, because he turns her over to Guy and to Dr. Saperstein. It's just, she is like, she's almost like the opposite of Peter in the Bible. Rather than being denying Christ, she's like being denied herself. That part, though, with Dr. Hill, it just goes to show how easy it is to disempower women or make them look hysterical or to pass them off and so and again it's something that's still relevant now it's very easy to believe a woman's being hysterical or getting carried away with herself oh she's just pregnant she's hormonal let's hand her over to the able husband because men never get hormonal do they ever but it's and another thing that is is highlighting that in a way that even films outside genre were not doing at that point. There were films that did look at domestic violence and domestic abuse, but but not in the way that this film does, which is really enlightening and does it in a way that we still don't see in a lot of cinema. And we should say as an aside, and we don't have to obviously get into this completely, but, you know, it is always fascinating, and especially for me, Repulsion, since that's much more of an auteur movie for Polanski, this incredible um, insight into female psyche and like the price paid for being a female in these in our society, especially at that time, um, his 
incredible insight into that and ability to portray that when, of course, we know his story. And whether you believe in the rape accusations or not, if you read his own memoir, you see he's a, he's a lech. He's, you know, he is, he is no, he has no, he does not hide the fact that he was a absolute, you know, does not treat women well, uh, very much like Hitchcock and, you know, like a lot of these great directors. So, I mean, you know, I, I that's a whole other subject, but it, it's uh, just a fascinating conversation of how this man was able to. And I think, you know, again, like I think a serial killer could exquisitely portray what murder is like or what being a victim of murder is like, because they're, you know, they're they're they're, they're kind of have an interest in that. Um, I think Polanski, it's fascinating, especially, again, the case of repulsion, how he was able to portray that while being the kind of guy who would be cat you know cat calling a woman walking down the street well there's also the complication too when it comes to him being a, a jewish man and the way that the movie conflates sometimes jewishness with this uh, satanic cult i mean there have been for hundreds of years one of the anti-jewish thing is like oh yeah jews love to eat babies and that's one of rosemary's biggest fears is that this cult is maybe not going to eat her baby but will use its blood in one of their ceremonies that we the, the trench sisters did the trench sisters ate them yeah one that we have many who, to me, is coded very Jewish with the way that she speaks. We have Dr. Saperstein. Abraham Saperstein, I don't think you could get a more Jewish name other than Jewy McJewerson, you know? And it's just like, it's so conflated, the idea of these Jewish people with the satanic cult. And here we have Polanski being this Jewish guy who has had to put up with all of this shit, whose parents died in the Holocaust, you know? and His mother, yeah. His mother, thank you. So, yeah, great uh, that he's playing with that stuff as well, I think is fascinating. It's interesting, though, because coming at the end of the Hays Code, this is like a little bit of a tangent. But one of the things that a lot of the sentiment that brought in the Hays Code was the Catholics worrying about the Jews in Hollywood. Like they were running it like Babylon, they were all mystics and they were, you know, so it, it's interesting that he chooses to, as a Jewish person himself, kind of play on that in a way, with especially with Ruth Gordon, because she is different to how she is in the book. I, I don't know what he's trying to say with that, but it's interesting, because it does, and it comes at the end of that period as well, when the Catholics are kind of being undermined, and finally the Hays Code's left, and, you know, you get all this transgressive cinema suddenly rush out, Hollywood changes but it's interesting that he uses that line and again very subtly or maybe not so subtly but not kind of in your face because one thing that I love about this film is nothing is in your face it's just everything's so underplayed and quiet and well, just as a quick aside, I mean, he had originally, Polanski really wanted Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine to be uh, the cast of it, and they just weren't available because uh, he was sick. And um, it was um, Evans, I think, who suggested, no, maybe it was, Ca no, it was Castle. Castle was friends with Ruth Gordon's husband, I think. And that's, and, and they kind of forced Polanski, Polanski was like, no, he didn't want Gordon, but they forced him to have lunch with her, and then he was completely won over. So 
anyway, that's just a, sort of an interesting aside. But yeah, you know, I mean, of course, um, but I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. That's what happened with Roman, though, because William Castle didn't want Roman Polanski. He's like, who is this young guy? Like, I've never heard of him. And the producer's like, have dinner with him. And by the end of this dinner, he's just like totally sold. This is the guy who's yeah. going to do it. Well, yeah. Who knows about, you know, one thing that we've certainly learned researching these movies is you can't believe all of these stories, even in the memoirs and biographies of these great, you know, even Ca- even what Castle says or what Polanski says. Certainly Polanski's been caught in a lot of fabrications in his memoir. So, you know, this is all they 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 weave their own myths around these movies and how it how they play out. But in any case, those are the stories. Right. One of the stories that I don't think we've brought up before is that they wanted Robert Redford to be the guy role, which would, would have played completely against type. I think it it would have been interesting. I, I love Cassavetes. I love him in this role. He plays it to me pitch perfect, but having Redford there as this, you know, such a clean cut boy next door. I mean, we've seen him play Satan before in the Twilight Zone episode that he was in where it played against type, which was really nice. Kind of that Brad Pitt you know, 30 years later kind of a thing. But yeah, what would he have been like in this role? And the other thing I, I've always wondered, I've read a story that, because there's this weird like non sequitur when she meets Dr. Hill, Rosemary meets Dr. Hill, and she says, oh, we just went to see the Fantastics. And it's like, okay, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but apparently in the um, in the, the screenplay, in the book, and then also in the movie, they shot a scene where she goes to see the Fantastics and there was a... Um, um, they meet up with uh, Joan Crawford and Van Johnson, which to me has a ring of truth to it because of the Castle Joan Crawford connection that he could have probably gotten. And I know that she actually visited the set. Yes, no, that really happened. And Joan Crawford was very upset that um, they, they, she ended up, or they ended up clashing with Polanski, I believe. And they kind of were like, okay, forget, you know, fuck this. And it was, it was not a good, it was a bad thing, but it was, it was, they did go there in front of the theater and try to fil- attempt to film it. And I believe it fell apart because either Joan Crawford or um, Van Johnson clashed badly with Polanski. I think Van Johnson actually insulted Polanski, you know, maybe called, he said he was short or called him a Polak or something. It's some, there's a really bad story there, but it is in the book. Yeah. Anyway, yes. according to what I've read from these memoirs and bi- many stacks of biographies. But again, like I said, these are, you know, you never know what's, what's really true. We haven't mentioned the William Castle cameo actually when he's in the phone book box. Oh, that is so well done. Oh my God, is that well done? That's a four, like a four and a half minute. Um, they, there's a lot of long continuous shots in this movie, which is very Polanski. That's an incredibly long, I mean, Mia Farrow, that was, I believe, the first scene, her first real scene in the shot in the movie, and, and she nails it. Um, but it's also an incredibly difficult, you know, it's, it's scene. And the first, I never knew this till very recently, the first person who you see with his back to the, um, phone booth is in fact dr saperstein oh nice so they must be wearing like the same colored suit but yeah they look from the back they look almost identical and then he walks away and then william castle walks in so that really was dr saperstein i didn't know that till very recently yeah it's pretty There's a lot of surveillance in this film though isn't it? like people just turning up out of nowhere like she turns around like we talked about the scene when she's at tiffany's oh minnie's just there and i just find that so creepy like they're 
following her around and they know where she is and they just turn up and like oh hi and it's just like oh so oppressive and just guy standing there listening to her conversation with hutch on the phone the night before hutch goes into his coma it's just like come on dude can't you fucking leave the room he he gives her no privacy whatsoever and poor hutch i love hutch oh hutch is fantastic (laughs) i mean maurice evans i think this is the same year that he was dr zayas yep yep he was you know the way they take him out is just so because he's such a support he's such a ray of light for rosemary and because we feel everything from her point of view you know seeing hutch becomes like a wonderful thing because he's on her side and then when they just take him out it's just like ah just (laughs) leave him alone He's as close to a father figure as she has in this movie, and then Roman wants to be that father figure, and it just does not work right. Uh, he's like the bad father. I mean, and you talked about how we don't really see her family at all, and her family is in the book slightly, but it's basically a phone call from her sister saying, I had a horrible dream about you that something bad is going to happen, and that's the night that Rosemary gets pregnant. But really, she's not there very much at all, and the family isn't there. So this whole coven becomes her family, which is just super scary. That is a go- another gothic thing, though, because a lot of the reason we get the gothic maiden is usually because this young woman has become orphaned or detached from her family in some way, and so she doesn't have that support. Like something like Sheridan the Fanny's Carmina, the whole premise of that novel where a vampire infiltrates the home, posing as a friend and a maternal figure happens because the mother's died. And it's it's a recurring theme about... that. They kind of try... In Gothic, it's supporting the, the role of the family and the importance of the family and... You know, all these outsiders are trying to attack the family, and that's why you need a strong, good, wholesome family. But it's like a recurring thing, and I wonder if it's how much of it's intentional in this because she's just so isolated and lonely. That scene where she, where it's raining and she's just a famous screenshot, and she's just in her apartment. It's heartbreaking. Well, they definitely, in the novel, um, they worked that in as her family is very, very Catholic. And she had married a, I think, guy is half Protestant, half Jewish, actually, I think. Yeah. Or his mother remarried a Jew. I think that's what it was. He's Protestant. And then his parents were divorced and his mother had remarried a Jew. Something, you know, it's actually very spelled out, but 100% it's religion. And, you know, she wasn't married in a Catholic church and, you know, the whole thing. So they worked that in to the theme, you know, the, the, the whole theme, obviously. It's Guy's fault again. <laughs> it's religion. Yeah, there's that great scene of Hutch. I think it's the last time we ever actually see him. It's Hutch in Roman, and uh, it's the whole idea of uh, Roman meets Hutch, realizes that he's a threat, and then yeah. next thing you know, uh, Guy is showing up, still wearing his makeup, and he gives this whole bullshit excuse of like, oh, yeah, they had to rewrite the scene or whatever. And it just like really... like 
basically forcing Hutch out of the apartment, stealing one of his belongings, and then again, guy giving this whole like, oh, I suddenly have a yen for ice cream and running off, you know, oh. it's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> what a shit house. What's so great is picturing all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. The Castavets are like calling Guy and saying, you got to get your ass over here and you need to get a possession of Hutch and then you need to come over here with that possession. And, you know, you just can picture all of the phone calls and all of the running around and, you know, there's a scene in the book where guy runs out for something and she watches out the window and he never exits the building and it's you know because you know he's actually going to the castavets to deliver something to them or to tell them tip them off to something you know it's all this stuff you don't see that's going on so much activity you don't see it but you can hear it sometimes and you hear like the after guy leaves the doorbell rings and you can hear the doorbell but then it's really nice the way that polanski then cuts to another doorbell being rung and it's like oh okay was that like a lead-in from the previous scene or is this happening now and just that he uses these little tricks throughout i love too that rosemary she looks at herself in the mirror quite a bit. We talked about how lonely she is and she's always looking at herself and there's that wonderful, wonderful moment where she's eating that. Is it like raw liver? I think in the book it's a chicken heart or something and she catches a glimpse of herself reflected in the toaster. So it's this distorted reflection and oh my God, that was the moment, the very first time I saw this movie, that was the moment for me when she catches a glimpse of herself reflected in that toaster all the distorted with the blood on her mouth and it just again i talked about how she looks like a vampire especially when hutch comes over um and meets roman castavet that was the moment where it looked like she was actually turning into a vampire well she's become so primal hasn't she in and it says there's a lot of stuff about motherhood in this as well like the prime the maternal instinct and everything that finally drives her to become protective at the end of her child at any cost it's like that dilemma isn't it what do you do uh, the stuff about child loss as well at the end particularly resonant when she thinks she's lost the baby but they're milking her which is just like, these yeah. people have just got their milking her and it's just like you know so much about motherhood and how women's bodies are basically pushed around and prodded around and you know they don't have much consent in that I know things are changing but you know I've had five children and my last one was a cesarean section and uh you know, there's you don't have a lot of agency in that situation anyway. As soon as you're pregnant, you kind of, I don't know, you kind of become a vessel and you are you have to go along to these tests all the time. I know it's for the, obviously, for the health of the baby, but sometimes you do feel like you're sort of in this test tube with doctors prodding you and taking things away from you like blood and samples and you know and it can be and you do have that in this again very very subtly just as soon as she's pregnant she's no longer her body's no longer her own it's dr saperstein's it's guys it's romans it's even minis but it's not rosemary's it's really interesting yes it's quite um for its era very transgressive i think well i think she you know loves the baby and of course that's you know how we kind of wrap wrap the movie up in a very you know like sort of surprising way but one of my favorite bits is when she first feels the baby kick and guy 
She tells she tells guy touch touch my stomach, and he jerks his hand away because he knows that that what's in there is not something he wants to be anywhere within ten feet of. You know, and I love I love that touch. Mine guys, oh god, other guys can can be like that anyway. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it's I've all never icky. Had a kid, but, it's yeah. women's things. It's touchy touchy. But you also <laughs> have that other thing is when you're pregnant. All of a sudden, you suddenly become, and I've seen other women complaining about this, sort of like public property. You have random people you don't even know kind of coming up and touching your belly. Like old ladies when you're out shopping and stuff, or family men, or people that are like, you know, I'm not a touchy person anyway. But for some reason, they seem to think consent doesn't matter once you're pregnant. And so there is a lot of touchy... And you see that in Rosemary, like the way Minnie is with her and kind of just takes over her life and stuff. It's, um, I think it's wonderful. And again, I can't think of any other film that it's been addressed like this in. Just a perception, you know, of, of what it's like to be pregnant and have everything taken over for you. And everything's about the good for the baby. And so, you know, what you think doesn't matter. I'm sounding very resentful. I'm not. I love my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you do lose a lot of agency when you're pregnant. And, uh, and people tend to forget boundaries as well with you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And this film plays on that in a very very oppressive way which is very very clever and really insightful it's it's a very fantastical movie obviously it's a fantasy but it's so plausible because of these human elements you know because of these things that we recognize in real life uh, these and of course the incredible casting with where these actors just become people that you have met in your life you know and and it's it's just it's plausible you can picture it you can picture rosemary feeling the pressure to drink these drinks you know and and yeah, and that's, that's the, yeah that is the thing you know you think why would she do that and she doesn't even like the taste of them well, when you're pregnant, you do have, oh no, you should be doing this, you should be eating more of that. You become really paranoid about what you're consuming. And people, you know, authority figures or people that are older, like your nan or someone, will say, oh, you should be doing this. And so you think, should I, should I? Like, you don't even really want it because you feel like throwing up all the time. But you're kind of eating this stuff thinking, well, I need it. I need to eat this because, you know, it is like this whole thing that you're very pressurized to... I guess not so much now. I think younger women now, because they have the internet and they're a lot more... But when I had my son, my oldest son, that was like 1992. So it was still like even then, not that long ago, or 26 years ago, <laughs> 27 years ago, it was, it, was, it was still kind of, you know, a lot of mystery surrounding childbirth and that. And you could just read in certain books and doctors would keep things from you. You know, you'd ask a question, they'd be like, oh, wow. You know, they'd get kind of irritated with you, like, why are you asking me this <laughs> isn't that your job 
On a side note, honestly, I only go to female doctors and it's because, you know, and studies have shown women, female doctors tend to take in more of your information and consider what you're saying and believe you more. I've had, you know, I've never had kids, so I can't compare the pregnancy experience, but just in my life with not just gynecological problems, but any, you know, all sleep problems. And I've had doctors dismiss me so many times. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's always the male doctors. Uh, no offense. Again, not all men, not all men, not all no, men. No, I, I only go and see f- female doctors as well. And Just, yeah, so I think, you know, again, it, it, yeah, this is, it still, it still goes on. It's still, it's still an issue. And so this movie still resonates. Well, empathy can only take you so far, right? Like I will never experience, I will never experience a period cramp. I will never experience childbirth. I will never experience this stuff. So I can try to imagine what that's like, but I will never actually feel it. You can maybe try to give me something that is similar to that. But again, I will never know that discomfort, that experience. I will never know what a huge fluctuation of hormones does to my body. None of that stuff. So I totally understand why you'd want to go to somebody who actually has felt that before. I don't think it's just that i think male doctors this again not all men hashtag not all men but but just in my experience male doctors tend to assume this authority position and they're less likely to believe you yes yes. they're less likely to i have my last pregnancy was a terrible pregnancy and i'm not going to go into the gory details because it's more horrific that my son is lovely and he's 13 now but constantly throughout that, after having four children before, I was saying something's not right about this. And all the the specialists, unfortunately, that were available were men, male these male specialists. And they were just kind of fobbing me off as this neurotic woman and not listening to me like, hey, I've had four pregnancies before. There's something different about this. And they just, yeah, they just wouldn't listen. And then it... Studies show over and over again that, um, you know, male doctors tend to dismiss both, both female complaints and minority complaints, uh, as, you know, as exaggeration, you know, more than they do. And that's why, you know, women come in sometimes with heart attack symptoms and are told to go home. It, you know, again, it's, um, we're not just making this up. I mean, there's, st- there's plenty of studies that show that this to be true. And, and thank God, you know, because now we're understanding that this is an issue and men, who are doctors and the whole medical community can readjust, but you know, it's just, that's it. it just, again, this movie represents something that still exists to this day, but was way worse back then. And I feel so bad for our parents and grandparents for what they had to, you know, really deal with. You know, while we were talking, the one thing I, I was curious about, and I don't remember if this was in the book or not. Uh, and I don't think it's in the movie. I know that Hutch has, has daughters and that they've had babies delivered by Dr. Saperstein. Do the cast of vets, do they have any children at all? No. No, I don't think they do. And I think that's deliberate because it makes them look like they're this older couple who are a bit lonely and they kind of want to adopt someone and just give their love to them, which is really not what's going on. I think it, you know, if they had their own children, they'd be grooming their own children to be the vessels of the, wouldn't they? or feeding them to the trench sisters <laughs> or wrapping or wrapping them in a newspaper and leaving them in the laundry room yeah which might have happened who knows it, yeah. it supposedly did it supposedly that was like one of the newspaper articles that Hutch had found so that apparently really did happen you know in the story 
I love that he knows so much about the Bramford. As soon as they bring it up, he's just like, oh, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. He just like has this whole wealth of information before he does any research at all. And it's just like, holy shit, Hutch, you really know the city very well. That's why I love him when he meets Roman, that look that comes between them. <laughs> it's like, you know, because Hutch, he just he's so switched on. I wanted to bring up one thing really quick about the book is I love that, you know, I talked about how Guy would say like hell of a way to get apart. There's a lot of interesting phrases that Levin uses in the book, which are fantastic. Like when we find, I, I like that Terry says they found me on the sidewalk and then that's at where she ends up is back on the sidewalk, her face smashed in. Shh. She says they scrape me off the sidewalk or something oh, like geez. that. Yeah, yeah. She says <laughs> like they 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 something like they scrape me off the sidewalk. Yeah, it's uh I love when in the book he describes it as they found a black mass on the sidewalk and I was like, "Oh, a black mass. That is so nice." <laughs> <laughs> and the book is just rife with little turns of phrase like that just just really add to yeah the, even before the horror kicks in that he is already peppering those things and keeping us off guard with just the language that he's using i also wanted to talk about another thing that i hate guy for is after that party when he starts to talk about her friends and he just cannot say anything nice about her friends and that he calls them bitches twice it's just like oh for fuck's sake guy fuck That's you a, it's a typical it's a typical abuser's tactic though he is sort of playing on his self-doubt and he wants to get her away from her friends so he starts to you know, because in domestic abuse situations, a guy won't just come out and forbid something to start with. It starts with the doubt. And they're, oh, do you really want to hang around with that cow? Do you want, you know, and and all that. And that's what he's doing to protect his asset. And he really is a slimy cock. Well, again, that's why I think Mia Farrow was a great choice. Because you can't picture, like, Tuesday well necessarily, like, getting her ass slapped and... Like a lot, you know what I mean? Like you, you really, it's again, a little bit like the Shelley Duvall character in The Shining where you want, you really, Kubrick made a good choice, you know, making it a weaker character because it fits, but eventually, you know, the strength comes out. It's just a different kind of strength. Again, it's, it's, um, we don't think of like nurturing and this, you know, you can be hysterical, you can be terrified, but you can also be strong at the same time. You know, it's a different kind of strength, you know, that, that you only see rarely in these kinds of movies. Um, you know, as opposed to Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween and, and all of those kinds of female figures, which are wonderful. And I love, you know, that women are often the centers and the heroes of horror movies. But I love this difference where Mia Farrow is so, such a, a female archetype she's so feminine it's ridiculous it's almost annoying but yet you know she's the hero what also gives you a fantastic in joke with her trying to read yes i can by sammy davis yes. jr <laughs> yeah excuse me <laughs> are you reading yes i can yeah have you read it yeah by sammy davis jr yeah you know what the title of that book should be yes i can if frank sinatra says it's okay because <laughs> frank calls the shots for all those guys there's that scene of Wendy in The Shining where she's got the knife, and it's like she doesn't know how to use the knife. She just is kind of swinging it around, and you know that she's going to lose that battle against Jack. And in this, there's that awesome sequence where 
uh, Rosemary really empowers herself and she's got those fucking blue fuzzy slippers. She's got that huge kitchen knife and the way that Polanski shoots it with her walking towards the camera, the shot of the feet and then the shot of her holding that knife. She looks like she's a fucking serial killer at that moment, which is fantastic. And it's like, okay, she is finally taking charge. She's going to go through the back of the closet and she's got that knife. And now it's her time to be the observer because like you said, she's been observed so much through this. She's been spied on even when the women are kicking guy out of the the uh, kitchen during that party he's looking through that little window at her until they finally get rid of him and it's like she is always the one who's under the microscope and finally she comes into that party and nobody knows notices her at first and she finally gets the glimpse what's going on in that coven what's going on behind that that wall that we couldn't see that guy has been a part of but she's been kept out of for this entire film it's like the ultimate fuck you to Guy in a way as well, because Guy has his own plans. They're just going to try for another kid that's his, and they're going to carry on, and she's going to do this, that, and the other, and be his wife. And when she goes to the child, she kind of puts an end to Guy's plans as far as they're concerned. Guy has that whole thing that he talks about. Paramount is just around the corner, and this is going to happen, and we're going to do this. And he has his whole American dream, which he just assumes that Rosemary wants to be a part of that dream. Now, this is interesting, too, about the final scene. Um, you know, so uh, famously, Cassavetes and Polanski did not get along at all. Um, Polanski was very, his, the kind of directing that he did was very meticulous and uh, thought out, and he would tell them exactly how to pose their bodies and exactly, you know, every little detail. He had it all in his head ahead of time and told them exactly what to do, whereas Cassavetes famously is all about improv, and they ended up clashing terribly. So by the time this scene was filmed, uh, actually Cassavetes did not want to be in the scene. And I think that's really interesting. Like, it's almost like his real, he was really feeling this guilt and this humiliation that you see in Guy through, you know, toward as you come to the end of the movie. Um, but Polanski put his foot down. Apparently it was such a big fight. You know, everybody on crew was actually kind of scared. I mean, it was a complete shouting match, you know, screaming match between the two of them. And he finally said, you're going to be in the scene. And I think, again, it just, you see Cassavetes, the look on his face during these final moments. Um, it, it just was both superb acting, I guess, but, but, but very likely a little bit of just the culmination of, of this, of, of him not wanting to be in this scene fitting so perfectly with his character. They both had little man syndrome and they're both actor directors. Which makes a brilliant energy, though. I think sometimes the the conflicting energy on sets can just make the best films, and especially when the egos are raging. I just yeah. Well, look at Witchfinder General, another film that came out this year, another great groundbreaking film. Michael Reeves and Vincent Price just really. Reeves didn't want Vincent Price. Vincent Price thought, "Who's this kid?" You know, he's in his early 20s, how dare you, and made one of Vincent Price's best films, and his best performance, I reckon, it's his straightest performance. I want to talk some more about that end scene where she comes through the back, and like I said, she recognizes the painting and says, you know, she's too, you've got her too high, the way that she comes in, and 
they have these international guests. I'm doing air quotes, but Hayato, I think is the guy's name, the Japanese man who is playing into that fantastic stereotype of the uh, Uber photographer. <laughs> my wife is like, my wife's like, he's almost as bad as Mickey Rooney, though he's actually a Japanese guy. And then, and then this, the strange, what is, what's that guy? Uh, Agrian Stravopoulos, um, who comes in. He looks almost like the Shah of Iran a little bit to me, but I guess he's representing again, kind of the Orient. It's almost like the, uh, the Magi, you know, we've got these yes. different guys from different kingdoms coming to visit the, the new sun kind of thing. I don't know who that third person would be other than possibly Roman, who is still supposed to be in Dubrovnik. And I love that line where she says, Shut up, you're in Dubrovnik. I don't hear you. Yes, definitely. And, and yeah, I agree. That's the Magi that, you know, and, and it's, it pulls together, you know, this whole thing where, you know, of, of his Romans, you know, incredible power as this leader, you know, clearly he's the leader, you know, he is the Alistair Crowley, you know, he is that guy, the Gardner figure, the Anton LaVey. So, um, it just really brings all that home. And again, again, just beautiful casting. Um, Sidney Blackmer, he apparently in real life was the nice this guy in the whole world. And Mia Farrow said it was almost strange seeing him screaming hell Satan at the end because he's such a sweetheart. But um, that is just, again, a beautiful mix of this evil character who comes off as this grandpa, um, a beautiful uh, contrast of, um, you know, contrast of personality traits that make this character so complex and so perfect. Yeah, I love some of his lines in here, like, you know, he shall overthrow their temples and how he, he keeps calling 1966 the year one. And he's like, the year one, the sun is here. And just, my God, he is so happy about this. He's <laughs> yeah, he's smiling through the whole thing. I love that little smile he has. He's just having a ball and everything's really, he's seeing that really everything's working out perfectly. Um, but at the same time, there's this incredible tender side. And, and that's why he's able to lure her over at the end. And then, you you know, we can't not say that Mia Farrow in the end, this end scene is just, it is Oscar worthy performance. I mean, she really was kind of snubbed because that is just what a scene, what a, what a depiction of seeing this baby. She just, you just feel that horror in your bones. There's so many beats to that scene because the scene, it's not just like she comes in, she sees this, she goes. There are so many different moments in this, which are just fantastic. The way she moves around that space, the way that the characters interact with her, the way that we see Laura Louise uh, rocking the cradle and she starts to give Rosemary shit. The, the two times that Roman talks to her about, well, you are its mother and just trying to kind of cajole her into doing her duty as a mother rather than looking at this son of Satan as a Catholic. You know, there's so many things that she should be doing, but she doesn't. Those little moments like her dropping the knife and Minnie yes. coming over and she licks her finger and then rubs the floor where the knife was. And it's just like, oh, that's so great because she's so concerned about her floors. We had that whole thing about the carpet earlier, you know? And that was, that was an improv on Ruth Gordon's part, apparently. Like, that's not in the book. And um, Mia Farrow is pretty sure that was an improv, which is amazing. If you think about this, though, like to go back to the Hayes Code again, within the Hayes Code, crime couldn't pay, villains had to be punished, blah, blah, blah. All good had to win over evil. And you look at Rosemary's Baby, the conclusion to that film, it's like the biggest fuck you to all of that because it's just so ambiguous and so, like, whoa. And... uh 
you know, you expect good to... Or when, when I was a kid and I'd watch horror films, you know, the classic horror films, you're kind of expecting good to triumph over evil and you're expecting it. And with this film, it's just like, no. But then are the Satanists really that bad because they're kind of cool? And, you know, it's all this sort of stuff that's so... Considering, you know cinema's only just starting to change at this point i think that's why rosemary's baby remains so important to horror because it's just oh this night of the living dead Witchfinder general those three films just totally span the genre off on a different trajectory i mean look at rosemary's baby alone the amount of satanic panic i'm quite sure it had a bearing on films like the exorcist the omen you know the uh, eve like even things like the Italian Giallo and all the colours of the dark. So many people are like, oh yeah, my inspiration was Rosemary's Baby. It just changed the landscape of everything and wasn't deliberately made as a genre film either. I think that's why it's so good because it's, um, it's not looking at those tropes and cliches. It's completely its own thing. It still remains completely its own thing. Evil really does win at the end, which is fantastic. I mean, the the look on her face when she has the baby and is holding it, and you just realize, yep, she's standing there amongst all of these Satanists and then fade out. Well, actually, it's not even fade out because then we go back to the apartment and we get the same shot from the beginning of the couple walking into the apartment i want to say it's the exact same shot it's almost like the cyclical nature of will this be the next couple who moves in it's kind of a complex uh ending in a way because uh you know the real the real positive ending would be if she killed the baby right and she ended the antichrist you know she she prevented it but that would be like another horror that would be an interestingly horrific ending but that's actually the positive ending um is somehow she you know offs the baby but um you know the fact that it's like this motherhood impulse still just is the is the is you know it's a very um heroic you know there's something very heroic about her saying well this baby is half me and i'm a good person it's half satan but you know i love i love this baby there's you know i can't deny my love for this baby and so it is it's beautifully complex really we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages <laughs> I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv, that's ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code podcast, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. Yeah. 
baby is special. And every special baby needs a special diet. But for babies that are a little extra special, there's Rosemary's Baby Food. Rosemary's Baby Food is specially formulated to nourish spawns of Satan with the nutrients they need to overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples, redeem the despised, and wreak vengeance in the name of the burned and the tortured, all in a deliciously palatable puree that is guaranteed to ensure rapid growth and ascendance of your precious little antichrist. <laughs> Flavors include strawberries and eyeballs, peach cobbler with lizard tongue, blood of virgin and peas medley, and many more. So make sure you treat your little one right with Rosemary's Baby Food. After all, out of all the women in the world, Satan chose you. So don't disappoint him or his son. With Rosemary's Baby Food, his power is stronger than stronger. His might shall last longer than longer. God is dead. My year is one. <laughs> hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. Friday, a Halloween special starring Paul Lynn. Turning myself on. And his special guests, Tim Conway, Florence Henderson, Donnie Marie Osmond, Pinky Tuscadero, and the incredible Kiss. Then, Rosemary's baby has come of age. For a birthday boy. Satan has come to reclaim his son. No! Due to mature subject matter, parental discretion is advised. Look what's happened to Rosemary's baby right after Paul Lynn. Friday, starting at 8, 7 Central and Mountain on ABC. All right, we're back and we're talking about Rosemary's baby. And like any horror movie, pretty much anymore there was a sequel to this uh which was actually there were two sequels and we'll talk about both of those and a remake so my god this hits all the check marks as far as what happens to horror movies these days so there was look what happened to rosemary's baby that happened in 1976 which i thought it was going to be a weird comedy with that name i thought it was going to be like you know the son of of the devil and he does like card tricks or something like that especially 1976 i was like okay maybe this isn't like it maybe it'd be like the jerk 2 too you know something like that but no more than anything and you guys feel free to uh to contradict me but it felt like this was a tv pilot because we don't get an ending to this it does not end no, I can't believe, I'll just say, I saw this some years ago on the Horror Channel over here, which is like our kind of low-rent cable channel. Uh, wasn't particularly impressed. Can't believe I watched it again for this episode. <laughs> Actually, though, I thought it had some interesting ideas this time around. 
and uh, some interesting things. But oh, so much of it is just like, what the. And why is <laughs> Ruth Gordon in that film, like five years after Harold and Maud? She's in this made for TV, like, what the fuck is this cash in? It's the same year The Omen came out as well. It's just like, and it is very Omen, I think, in that regard. It's almost like Omen, what is it, Omen 3, the one with yeah, Sam Neill? but kind of not as well, because it's got hippies in it. It's it's clearly, you know, it's obviously made for TV. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it's not of the caliber. It was directed by Sam Osteen, who was the incredible editor for Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown and The Graduate. You know, he's incredible. One of the greatest editors ever. And he decided to direct this. Uh, he also directed Sparkle, which is another classic. Was it really directed by him? Because I swore the credits said written and directed by Anthony Wilson. No, it was directed by Sam Osteen. Wow, I must have totally misread those. We should maybe double check it, but I feel pretty positive about that. But yeah, um, it's 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 got the rock star, you know. So 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 Adrian slash Andy is a rock star. Uh, he's cute. He's adorable, you know. And women are falling all over him. And you know, it's got a very seventies rock star David Bowie must vibe. At one point. Um, they have the white makeup on him like a mime. Now, if you can, if it you looks remember, like fucking Marcel Marceau. If, I posted if, a thing on Facebook before we came on, just to drop Mike in the shit for you know forcing me into. <laughs> and it's like, what is going on here? What's with the clown face? And when he's going through the crowd, the orgy crowd. I thought he was going to start Mike just burst into the invisible box or something. It's just like, what is going on? Now, in the 70s, mimes were very in. Most people don't remember this. Um, Shields and Yarnell had their own TV show. Absolutely. Um, Godspell, I was thinking, to me, it was like the anti-Godspell where, you know, they're like clowns representing, you know, the the gospel, you know, the the Bible. Um, And there was just like a mime, I don't know, mimes were, I'm telling you, it's hard to believe now, but mimes were cool in the 70s. So they threw that in. They threw well, what in. What year did William Castle do Shanks with Marcel Marceau in it? Oh, it was, I think that, because that was like his last horror film and his closest to his own vision film. And uh-huh. I think that might have been 76 or maybe 70. It would definitely make sense. But from seventy four, I did a podcast on my memory's terrible. But Marcel Marceau is this this uh mime in it who he plays different characters. It's almost like a silent film and he can resurrect dead bodies. It's a fucked up <laughs> film. But it did feel like, oh my god, we've turned into Shanks now. What's gonna go on here? <laughs> it's just so crazy. And it's such as the storyline is like chopped up in a weird way that doesn't make sense. And, um, you, yeah, there's no conclusion. You feel like it is a pilot. Like they were going to then have a series featuring this handsome Andrew, Adrian Andrew, um, which he could have pulled it off. He was pretty cool. I, th- I thought he did a good job, actually. You know, I mean, for a TV movie, um, it, you know, you could see him being a lead character playing, you know, Satan's half child. Um, so maybe that's what they were thinking because it is, it's, it's really strange. I was reading the YouTube comments, though, and they're like, he's no Damien Thorne. (laughs) (laughs) It's Damien, which is almost an anagram of Adrian. But anyway, it's very much uh, like because Patty Duke is there as his mother, as Rosemary. And she 
they get rid of her by the end of the first act. And so by the end, he's like, well, I got to go search for my mother. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be his search for his mother throughout the entire show. This is going to be like Jason, the wheeled warriors where he's always looking for his father. But in this one, it's him looking for his mother. No, so I was going to say, it wouldn't have been the worst television series. I might have watched it. I don't know. It's kind of like, incred- yeah, or like Incredible Hulk, you know, ding, 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 ding. They end every show very poignantly, you know. And it's very, I mean, by even eight years after Rosemary's Baby, we've already like run so many of these satanic things. You talked about the exorcist and the omen. And when we talked about heretic, uh, the heretic exorcist too, we talked about how many exorcism films there were throughout the entire 1970s. And just between the first exorcist and the second exorcist, we were fatigued of exorcism stories. We're almost fatigued of, 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 of devil stories, but here we are right in the the heart of it in 1976 and the whole idea of like almost everybody that he meets is a satanist it so reminded me of something like race with the devil where it's like i was gonna say race with the devil yeah it's it's like uh, you never know who to trust because everybody's on the side of satan and it's got that kind of counterculture vibe as well to it some such weird things that happen like the the baby adrian breaking kids necks and they just run down the road into a trailer and escape, like no mob coming. Like somebody broke my kid's neck, I would be pursuing those people. But like it's like they just run away to about two hundred feet away to the hooker's cabin. Like nothing makes sense about it. It's utterly bizarre film. No wonder I couldn't remember the plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no plot. I thought that the guy that played his father did a pretty good job of capturing the same kind of assholeness of Cassavetes. Yeah, uh, who is uh, George Maharis, I think it is. He's quite good, apart from his wig. His wig later on when they're trying to make him look older. Right. Well, at least Ray Milan didn't want to wear a wig for this one. I liked when Ray Milan finally embraced that he was a bald man, because when he was fighting that, it wasn't good. He's, he's good. I he, love Ray Milan. Yeah, he's Ray great. Milan he's great. great in this. And I mean, you almost you almost don't know. He, he has that Sydney Blackmer vibe, so it works. It works really well. But it's a, I mean, it's a terrible it's a terrible movie that has some, you know, some decent it's worth it's worth a watch, you know, for for just you know the silliness of it and a few a few sort of interesting little bits here and there but it's mostly yeah just it's it's classic 70s you know these wonderful actors who from the 30s and the 40s and you know they they, they had this era of their older age they they ended up on love boat they you know they had the, the humi- most humiliating era of television where they're you know you look at their IMDb page and they're in all these like horrible things and you feel so bad for these incredible you know really talented people um, that was what the work was you know and this was one of those cases Well I did Lupino's in The Devil's Reign is the mum with no eyes at one point it's like his fucking Ida Lupino I mean Ray Milan bless him during this point was making some really interesting decisions with his career I love that almost everybody we've brought up has been in a Columbo episode Ida Lupino, Ruth Gordon and Ray Milan (laughs) were all fantastic in Columbo though Ida Lupino gets offed pretty early in that Johnny Cash episode did either of you get a chance to read Son of Rosemary, no, the Ira Levin sorry, sequel? I, I didn't. I, 
I did. I did. I, I kind of zipped through it. Um, it's not, you know, nearly as good as Ira 11s earlier writing. You know, uh, I had read Stepford Wives and I, I think I read Boys from Brazil. But anyway, um, it's, it's, yeah. What did you think it's of it? It's not very good. It no. feels very rushed. And especially the ending just feels like it feels very, very rushed. And I am still unclear on everything that happened. So just for the listening audience at home. So we cut to 1999, uh, 33 years after 1966, when Adrian slash Andrew is born. So Adrian is the name that the cast of vets have given to the baby. Andrew is the name that Rosemary gives the baby. It's interesting in the movie, the women's names, the girls' names that she gives the baby change, but it's always Andy. So it's like Andy or Jenny, Andy or Susan, Andy yeah. or whoever, but it's always Andy. So Andy is now 33, which is, of course, we know the same year that uh, the same age that Christ was when he started his ministry. And they play upon that. Andy is, uh, looks very much like Christ. Andy has become the savior to the world. Meanwhile, Rosemary has been in a coma for 27 years. She finally wakes up when the last member of the coven dies and becomes this kind of celebrity because she's the mother of, and not only because she woke up after a coma for 27 years, but she's the mother of Andy. And there's this whole thing about Andy wants to bring the world together on the eve of the millennium and have everyone light a candle at exactly midnight Greenwich Mean Time, which I appreciate that he wants it to happen at Greenwich Mean Time rather than midnight in whatever time zone you're in, because that always drives me crazy when we talk about the world's going to end at midnight. And then I'm like, okay, so is that the day before for Australia or how does it go? <laughs> Right. And you can and you can see coming a mile away that something's up with these candles. <laughs> like, there's, there's something that's not going to be. So the, the controversy in the book is, is he the is the Satan side? Uh, is Adrian is Adrian the Satan side winning where he's 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 plotting something terrible for the whole world? Or is the human side his good side that he, he's implying to Rosemary? He's conquered his bad side and he's actually a good guy. Um, and that, that's like you don't know really what's going on with it, what, what's going to happen. But um, in the end, here's the can we spoil the beautiful conclusion? I warned that we were going to spoil it, so... I, I haven't read the book, but spoil away, because I just feel justified I haven't read it now. <laughs> uh, this, this is... All right, are you ready? Are you ready? In the end, it's all been a dream. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. Bobby in, Ewing. <laughs> including... To answer for. Right, including book one, including Rosemary's Baby. It's all been a dream. So, yeah, it is a real clunk kind of ending. Um... And so, yeah, it's uh, not not we we are not going to recommend it. Um, we recommend you read the original because it's the original is fantastic. It's a beautifully written book, but this is yeah, it's it's not even and it's it's just it's it's sloppily. It is it's slop. It was written in 1997, so it was way late in his career, and um, clearly, I would think he must have had pressure from he needed the he needed the dough, maybe something like that. Well, then also he was saying that. Alan Ladd Jr. basically promised him that they would make a movie out of it. And, I, and I'm so glad that they didn't. And he was like, well, Mia Fair would be the perfect age and we could have Brad Pitt play Andrew. And I was like, no, no. See, I never felt the need to read, like, even with the sequel that, uh, the sequel we were just talking about, I just came across that by accident, but I never really had any 
wish to read any sequel or look beyond because I just think the f- the first part is just so perfect being self-contained yeah. that anything else just feels like extra. I don't want to know what happened to Rosemary or Adrian or any. You know, I just it's so perfectly self-contained. I would one hundred percent agree. Yeah, not like the omens, like kind of a saga, and that makes sense, but not so much with Rosemary. So did anybody get to see the remake? I had, I think this was my second time seeing it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it's Zoe Saldana as Rosemary, and she kind of seems to have produced the, the series. It's a mini series. So it's two part mini series. So it's a whole three hour, um, yeah, three hours more or plus. Um, and it takes place in Paris. And it's n- not nearly as good. It's Angeska Holland directing it, so I had real high hopes for it. Though it was really weird that it said, at the beginning it said, based on Rosemary's Baby and Son of Rosemary. And I'm like, I don't see any Son of Rosemary in this whatsoever. No, not at all. And then, and then you know, they so it takes place in Paris, so obviously there's a rearranging a little bit of the setting and the characters. The Cassavetes are much younger. Um, they're, they're like middle-agers, and they're kind of hip, uh, glamorous, rich people. Um, and the they add a lot to the story because they have much more room to work with, but none of the additions really add anything of value. And the little bits that – the things that they change just are not to the advantage of the movie at all, in my opinion. Like, it's not as clever. Um, you know, suddenly the closet having an opening into the Cassavetes apartment is pointless. It's, like, completely pointless. Like, they're don't really have to do that anymore like all the stuff that just fit together really nicely in the original a lot of it becomes superfluous or it, or they do it in a weird way the death scenes they update to make much more gory um everybody seems to get ebola suddenly that's how the witches kill them suddenly they're bleeding from every orifice and hallucinating and crashing into you know telephone poles but um so that's like Again, doesn't add anything. I mean, violence can some, you know, the updated modern take on a, a more gory death could have been interesting, but they really kind of flubbed that up too. That doesn't sell it to me though. I like the original where just getting someone's glove or their tie and then, you know, they can. Then they die off screen or are, yeah, blind off screen. Uh- so much more effective. So much more effective. Because it's so plausible. You would imagine if there was such a thing as black magic, that's how that would happen. You would put them in a coma, you know, and that kind of thing. And it just, it's so much more plausible. The scenes that they do that are the same as the original, there's a few that are, you know, well, obviously the finale. And I mean, you just t- compare the two finales and it just is, it says it all. I mean, it just is so boring and dead and, um, the, the way she reads her lines and, and the things that they leave out of it. It just, it's, it's a dead ending. Um, the, the scene where she says to him, well, uh, um, you know, again, it's the equivalent of the party scene where she's saying, well, what about me? Why, why are you, what, fair to Dr. Sapperton? They actually do use that. And again, it just falls flat. So there's just no comparison. I mean, er- everything they try to do just really kind of falls flat. And, um, it's, it's a shame. And I think somebody could remake this movie and, and set it something, you know, in a different context. Um, but this, this didn't, this didn't work out. Well, they had a lot of playing pieces that they didn't play right 
to me. Like there's Zoe Saldana not being white. There's uh, the classism that could be there. And it's there a little bit, like the way that the cast of vets buy a whole new outfits for uh, Guy and Rosemary. And so there's a little bit of classism there. There's the idea of her being a stranger in a strange land and the idea of like her not being able to get people to speak her language. So there are some things that are there, some good playing pieces, but it just doesn't feel like they did enough with them in that they show the baby at the end. And it's that's one of the most brilliant things yes. that they do in the original is that they don't show the baby. They leave it all up to your imagination. You do not show the baby. <laughs> right. Yes. And you get Pansy, uh, Laura Louise saying like, oh, look at its hands, look at its feet. And it's just like, okay, what? Does it have fucking hooves or what? Right, right. <laughs> oh, it's so much better. And and even the, the rape scene, which should have been the climax of the first episode, you know, the ending, the finale of the episode one is the, you know, the obviously the, the rape scene with the devil. And it's like, how do you screw that up? You know, you have CGI. I mean, you know, you don't, again, you don't want them to show the devil, you know, necessarily because it's kind of better not to. But again, it just, it falls completely flat. You have to really make that into something that's colorful and interesting and creepy. And it just... They they just fall flat in every way. Um, they replace um, Hutch with a female friend, and again, it's like, why? He was an interesting character. Um, she's she's okay. She's she's but nothing interesting. There's like they just kind of um, pull pull the pull the life out of it. Um, deflate it. They deflate the whole thing. Well, again, I feel justified. I didn't touch this with anyone else's barge pole, let alone my own. That does bring up an interesting point, though. You talked about how Hutch uh, was changed to a female. I think that I, I would almost like to see that fantastic scene, and I'm very surprised that the fantastic scene isn't on any sort of extras or that we get to see stills from it or anything and all of the different makings of kind of thing, because the idea of Rosemary having a female friend as well as a male friend, because she goes to the Fantastics with Elise, and it, it yeah. is Elise that she ends up calling at the very end that calls her back within a few minutes, but already the machinations of the coven ha have come into play, and she has the baby right then. But I would have liked that, that we knew who Elise was and had a little bit of another friend rather than just Hutch. But I guess that shows that she's pretty much alone in the world, that she just has Hutch as the friend. So once Hutch is taken out, yes, she has other friends, but nobody nearly as close to her as Hutch. Yeah, no, you're right. It would have been, I mean, there's a way to do it. So it would have been interesting to see her female friend who's sticking up for her and all that stuff. But yeah, it just doesn't, again, it just, the casting is very, um, very un, un uh, inspired. The husband guy, it, oh, he's just a pretty boy. He's supposed to be a writer in this version instead of an actor. You do not buy this guy as a guy who has any depth, who could be writing some fantastic novel and suddenly, you know, promoted to the chair of the department at the Sorbonne, you know, of all places um you just do not buy this guy is just a pretty boy you know a pretty boy actor i mean no a uh, sorry apologies to the actor but he just has no depth and no personality and you don't even really feel the chemistry between as much smacky smack kissing as they do in the movie you don't feel the chemistry between him and rosemary 
um, you know, that kind of thing. And and then in the end, after the baby's born, they actually have her quite affectionate with him. In the in, of course, the original, she just spits in his face. That's all she can do. I mean, that she can she's not even gonna say a word to this guy. She's just gonna spit in his face. It's perfect. And here, you know, you just she's like leaning on him and embracing him because she's so distraught that the baby's dead and and and, and or even after um, you know, it it just Again, they take the snap. They take the, the, the kind of the wit and the, um, the real feeling of you, you would get what these people were feeling. They remove that. Um, it just. Actually, to go back, that, the other one we were talking about. Sorry, the look what happened to Rosemary's baby. That's one of the things that did pee me off about that was this idea in that that she's somehow been living with Guy. And he's become this famous film producer, director. And he's like, why is she with God? Well, I mean, no, she, I, no I don't think they are together. But he still managed to kind of live on. And he's talking about Rosemary to the press like they, they're known as. Bit, I mean, I, obviously, they don't have this closeness in there because she tries to get money. But it's just like, why is she? Why is that guy even anything? You know, get him out of there. It. it He's a good character, mind. You need the shithouse guys to make it work, really. He's definitely not in Son of Rosemary, which really confused me. That's one of the things that I thought was going to be a twist in Son of Rosemary was, like, he's been missing since she went into a coma. She's trying to find out. She mentions the play Luther. She is trying, like, hey, what do I know? And I'm waiting for that to come back some point in this whole thing either guy comes in and he's redeemed himself or that he is this joe mafia character who becomes her boyfriend or something but he just is gone from the whole book and like okay that doesn't make any sense to me he was off he was off by the coven like he just you know apparently they they did away with dispatched him when he was quite young you know when after shortly after all of this happened you know shortly after she went into coma but yeah it would have been a nice twist for that's what she thinks happens but then he pops up you know and uh, yeah it's it's very strange one thing that I want to real, mention real quick, and this is just apropos of nothing, is I want to call out that Derville Martin was the elevator operator in Rosemary's Baby, because he's going to get some notice over the next uh, couple weeks here when my uh, Dolomite is My Name comes out, because he is an actor, but he also directed the first Dolomite movie and Disco 9000, and he's great in this small little part, and he's like, I think there's one other African-American in this movie, which is one of the cops, but for the most part, he's the only black guy in all of Rosemary's baby. Yeah, and one guest, one female guest at Rosemary's party. Oh, there you go. You could the the all the actors we haven't even talked about. I mean, Patsy Kelly, one of the first openly gay actors in Hollywood. You know, pr- absolutely proud of her. Um, you know, and one of the great you know screwball comedy you know female Alicia Cook Jr. Alicia Cook Jr. is just a perfect. Action, you know, uh, Emmeline Henry, just so many amazing. Um, oh, uh, what's his name? Philip Leeds as the the flute playing dentist. Oh God, he always looks like a turtle to me. <laughs> Doctor Shand, yeah. It's not a it's not a it's not a flute. It's a recorder, and I. I love how Guy knows that he plays the recorder, and then that Rosemary actually picks up and says, "Well, how does he know he plays the recorder?" Yes, 
Hope Hope Summers also. Just just uh, again the casting. Oh, you could not have done better. Perfect. And Charles Grodin playing one of his first shitheel roles. I mean, Charles Grodin is famous for being a shitheel in almost everything that he does. Those little touches, though, with those characters at that party, though, you know they're indicating some wild, wild Wicker Man shit goes on with, Do- with Dr. Shan's recorder. And you just left there thinking, what are they doing in there? Like, what, <laughs> what are they doing in there? Because it's just so, it's, it is brilliant. And the fact that it's all kind of not- it's all memorable faces as well, but they're here in these sort of off roles and and the way he films their faces, like Hope Summers when she just pops up in a corner, and hell, hell Satan, or or when they first have Rosemary in bed, her face just popping up every once in a while in these corners, and the way with the lens that he's using, the almost slight distortion, uh, it's like a car- they're cartoon characters, you know, and it- it's just wonderful. Yeah, I love Patsy Kelly. I grew up watching uh, the North Avenue Irregulars, and she was fantastic in that. But she she was in movies for years and years. I mean, going back into the 1930s, if not earlier, and just I mean, so you got all of these great faces. I mean, Ralph Bellamy. Ralph Bellamy. I mean, m- maybe people listening to this podcast might remember him as being one of the bad guys from Training Spaces or Training Places, but. You know, this guy had had a huge career and he was just such a, he was so dashing. I mean, he was just a, such a gorgeous man between him and Don Amici, though he played the, uh, he was like the straight man and I can't remember which, which movie it was, but I think it was a Lubitsch comedy and he was just fantastic as a straight man. Yeah, uh, superb, superb casting. And that, and that's, you know, that's part of it. That's, that's why this movie is what it is. Again, um, Polanski did a great job directing, but it's not, again, uh, this movie, as I, uh, you know, I'm going to stress, you know, when I do this podcast, because so many people have said to me, how can you do a podcast about a Polanski movie? You know, he's evil. He's a child rapist. And, you know, he is. I mean, I believe he did rape this, this girl and probably did some other sexual abuses, but this movie is so much more than Polanski, <laughs> like so much more. I mean, the cinematographer, uh, William Fraker, you know, had done uh, you know, Bullet and all these amazing, uh, movies, um, again, Sam Osteen, you know, it's just so much more than Polanski. And, um, again, the casting is just, it would be a complete, you just, again, you see it in the Zoe Saldani version. Um, what happens when you don't cast properly? I mean, that could have been something, but it just, it just didn't, didn't work. Um, and that had a lot to do with just simply the wrong people in the wrong parts. I think just to throw in my aura on Roman Polanski, <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm all for separating the artist from the art. I think he's a fucking genius. I think he's an absolute genius. And, you know, in his personal life, he did some awful stuff, which he's owned. But I don't think that should stop you enjoying the work that he d- he's made. And I, I guess... You know, I wonder if there'll be people coming out. People tend to not touch Rosemary's Baby, though, which is interesting. Like, they call out the whole of Woody Allen's filmography, even though he wasn't actually convicted of anything, just on the basis of him being creepy. And uh, But with Roman Polanski, people tend to kind of... Even people that are quite vocal about Me Too and all this stuff... Rosemary's Baby seems to be the one that gets the pass the most. 
I'm finding as I'm putting together my podcast, people are refusing to be on it because of Polanski. Believe it or not, seriously. And, yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Fuck those people. Sorry. Yeah. And, all, <laughs> and and then and like I said, actually, over social media, and people saying to me, "How can you do this? Like, you shouldn't be doing this." And I've heard other podcasts where if they discuss this movie, they say, "Should we even be watching this?" You know. But uh, that's the thing too. Is I mean, you know, you'd have to give up Led Zeppelin. You'd have to give up. Klaus Kinski movies, which is a lot of Werner Herzog movies that we love. He raped his daughter, you know? I mean, you'd have to give up. There's so much art done by horrible people. And you really, if you're gonna, if you're gonna give up Rosemary's Baby, you've got to give up some incredible other music, art, painting. Picasso was an asshole. I mean, you, you, you know, you just, you have to, I think it's, it's impossible to be consistent. And, and if you can't, you know, we, ha- you have to separate, you know, I wouldn't pay, I wouldn't hand uh, Roman Polanski $25 for a work he did, you know, to, to, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't like the idea of compensating at this point, people of bad character. Um, I agree with the idea of not compensating people and ending ca- the career of Harry, Harvey Weinstein was a great thing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're definitely getting to this age where I think it's, it's good that these people's careers are being truncated if they're really, you know, doing terrible things. But, you know, altogether, again, Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby is so much bigger than Polanski. Um, and as are, you know, all of his movies, we didn't even talk about Christoph Komita, who did the incredible music, you know. Um, you can look back at Repulsion and you had, um, Gilroy, um, what's his name? Gilroy, who, the cinematographer. I mean, he's just, it's, it's a, you know, movies are always a group effort, no matter how auteur, unless you're John Cassavetes, I guess, <laughs> you know, generally it's a group effort. And, um, you know, I don't think it's fair to Ruth Gordon, Mia Farrow, William Fraker, and everybody else involved in this movie to say, we just can't watch this movie. Well, not even it. that, just the fact that it's such an important film for genre that you can't just say, oh, I don't like the man who made it. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I'm just going to say it doesn't exist. I think that's fucking ridiculous. The genre changed because of that film, largely because of that film and two other films. But you can't just, like, swipe it away and say, right, it doesn't exist now. I actually heard some ridiculous person on a podcast say that they will watch Roman Polanski films up until the year that he raped and then they don't mm. watch the ones after. And it's like, hello, like, what? Oh, I, I'm what? sure he was an angel. I'm sure he was an angel <laughs> when, when he was in his early 20s. Yeah, yeah it's just like, what? Sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> so real quick, I just wanted to say I screwed up. I was thinking of Robert Stack in To Be or Not To Be. I was actually thinking Ralph Bellamy. Ralph Bellamy in uh, His Girl Friday. That's where he plays a straight man. And he is just so fantastic in that because that is one of the screwball comedies. Oh, God, yes. And talk about just being perfect as that absolute stiff, know nothing. And But yet his comic timing, when he is in a comic movie, when he's playing a comic role, he's perfect. We didn't mention Baby Rosemary, which I oh. tried to watch. <laughs> you watch this at work. I tried to watch Thank it at you, work. Mike, but I... for putting that in Dropbox for us. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I was really hoping with that name and the year that it came out, because, I mean, we talked on the Exorcist episode about how there's Angel Above, Devil Below, which is a porn parody of uh, The Exorcist, but... In March, we did... 
a Daughters of Darkness podcast episode on this. You could have just asked me. And <laughs> I, I should have. I you about the full anal in the first two minutes. <laughs> it's, it a, it's a great film. It's a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun podcasting about it because John Hayes, who made it, is a director. He doesn't really get his due. He worked in genre. He worked in refies. He worked in hardcore always had these weird crossovers comedy horror mixed genres and he doesn't really get the credit where he's due among those other kind of independents from that period so we picked like four of his films that sort of showed different parts of his career and that was a hardcore one we picked just so we could talk about the Audrey at the funeral basically but it's it's not like he's straight it's nothing to do with Rosemary's baby whatsoever <laughs> i had hoped i had really hoped there's a character named rosemary <laughs> there's a go- there's like a weird father ghost thing in it and um, yeah i'm always happy happy to look at 70s porn because like the women have normal sized breasts and it's like yay this is so refreshing it's it's a fun one, Baby Rosemary. But yeah, from what you were saying, though, these other ones don't have anything to do with Rosie's baby, apart from having the same characters in them. So you know, yeah. maybe it does belong in the canon. There's a character called Rosemary. All right, guys, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. His partner's history. Get out of here. Damn shame. And he's got just 12 hours to find some answers. Remember the good old days when guns killed people? What is this pain? Very ugly. Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo are freewheeling cops on a fatal beat in dead heat. They shoot them, they don't die. Starts Friday at a theater near you. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the zombie cop comedy Dead Heat. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Kat and Susan. Kat, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Well, Mike, um, a documentary I wrote and co-produced and also appeared in because tight budgets uh, had its premiere in the UK here at Fright Fest, which is like the big genre festival that we have here. Uh, the Magnificent Obsession of Michael Reeves, which is all about I mentioned Witchfinder General actually in the episode, all about the director, Michael Reeves, who died at the age of 25. Um, you know, it was rumoured it was an overdose or, you know, he just took too many pills, could have been accidental, and he made three films, three genre films that kind of left a mark on horror, but then he died so young. So that film sort of, we talked to his childhood friends, we got Ian Ogilvy involved and Tom Baker, we worked with him and his last girlfriend. So yeah, that seemed to go down really well. And it's going to be included, as far as I know, as an exclusive, but I'm not sure at this point, on Analyst Entertainment's release of Michael Reeves' The Sorcerers, which should be out next month, I believe. It's a German release, but it's going to be English-friendly. And at this point, that'll be the only way you can see the documentary at that point, because we're not looking at streaming, you know, we're not doing anything else with it at this point. Um, And also, there's a few discs I help with extras on, uh, Les Liaisons d'Angerou, which is Roger Vadim's adaptation of Lacrosse, scandalous novel with the hot 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 jean moreau in it it's coming out from kino with a commentary from me arrow are finally putting out night breed in the uk which i think is out in a couple of weeks 
after that whole region locked scandal with the US disc the yeah <laughs> go into that um and I got to talk all about Clive Barker and decadence and religion and perversion on camera for that one and there's a bunch of other keynote stuff that I did commentaries for including a couple of Claude Sauté films which I th- I think he's just such a highly underrated director and finally Castro Bot my novella is in its final draft stages and Susan, last time we talked, you were midway th- taking apart The Shining two minutes and 37 seconds at a time. What is the latest with you, ma'am? Yes, you had been a guest on The Shining 237. So I did a whole series, The Shining 237 podcast, which was looking at consecutively every two minutes and 37 seconds. Finished, we did finish the film, but I'm still putting out episodes every so often with Kubrick stuff or interviews of people having to do with the movie, that kind of thing. So now I'm launching, my new project is Rosemary's Baby 666, looking at every six minutes and 66 seconds of Rosemary's Baby, by coincidence. Um, but it's not, I, I, it's not as of this recording. So as of this, uh, as of the time you release this episode, hopefully it will have started, it will have begun. So please do look for uh, rosemarysbaby666.com or or, you know, of course, look for me on Twitter, Facebook, go to The Shining 237, Twitter, Facebook, or the website, theshining237.com, and you'll get whatever you need to get to Rosemary's Baby. Um, I think I'm going to do it on the same feed on iTunes. And so um, also, please follow me on Twitter, Susan Tekla Kruglenska, impossible to spell. But if you look for The Shining 237, um, you'll be able to link and find me that way. I'm a writer in general. I do some comedy writing. I've done a lot of science writing and I'm looking for writing projects and would love to know about any, uh, I would love to write for anybody listening who, who might be interested. And I have a website, Susan Tekla Kruglenska, um, that has all of my work on it, you know, podcast and writing and history of all the stuff I've done. So. Well, I will be sure to link to that over at our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode as well. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Satan is his father, and his name is Adrian. He shall overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples. He shall redeem the despised and wreak vengeance in the name of the burned and the tortured. Hail Adrian. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. He chose you out of all the world, out of all the women, the whole world. He chose you. He arranged things because he wanted you to be the mother of his only living son. His power is stronger than stronger. His might shall last longer than longer. Yes, Satan. No. It can't be. No. Look at his hands and his feet.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.